Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Weird Catastrophe. Today I'm going to be taking a look at NPR and how the news that gets presented on National Public Radio has a rather demonstrable ideological bent and how NPR's news coverage serves more to propagandize rather than inform its listeners. And this video is based on an article that I wrote called NPR is Not Your Friend, which was originally published by the magazine Current Affairs. And you can find that article as well as all of my other work on weirdcatastrophe.substack.com. NPR is a problem. Now, to the good and proper leftists who have found their way here, I'm sure many of you are already thinking, um, yeah, NPR is a bastion of neoliberal groupthink and orthodoxy that gives cover to the worst of imperialism and corporate capitalism, and it ought to disentangle itself from its corporate donors. Very good. You can stop watching this since you obviously already know everything you need to know about the world. Your ideology provides all the answers before the questions are even asked. By contrast, to the basket of deplorable right-wingers who found their way here, you may already be thinking, yeah, NPR is an elitist, liberal propaganda cult that serves as a mouthpiece for the Democratic Party and is openly hostile to any conservative voices, and it ought to be defunded. Congratulations, you're both kind of right and both kind of wrong. Now, NPR originating like PBS from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, was originally envisioned as an ad-free public service to all Americans, standing as an alternative to the privately owned commercial media. Yet, like much other media nowadays, NPR has become a product, a partisan news service with a sterile professional tone that belies an underlying allegiance to a very narrow range of political viewpoints that are largely inoffensive to those in power. Today, NPR is stuffed with advertisements and mostly paid for by corporations and listeners who come from a very specific demographic, that demographic being white, well-educated liberals. And NPR now receives relatively little in government funding these days. As a result of this shift in NPR's funding and ethos, the outlet has come to exhibit some of the worst pathologies of our commercial mass media. NPR is not our friend. Now let's take a closer look at why this is. NPR's reach has grown considerably since its founding. Its programming between written news, audio, and video reaches approximately 57 million people every week while its flagship drive-time newscasts, Morning Edition, and All Things Considered are in the top five highest-rated radio programs in the U.S., pulling in close to 15 million listeners per week. So, needless to say, NPR has an enormous influence over the national conversation, particularly amongst its mostly liberal listeners. This is why it is so important to assess the kind of worldview that gets presented on NPR, which is anything but objective. Now, in a world full of overtly partisan outlets such as CNN, Fox, MSNBC, The Atlantic, Infowars, The Daily Wire, and many others, one might be tempted to think that NPR is a relatively moderate voice of reason amongst the sound and fury 
a benevolent public service funded by the taxpayer, as friendly, essential, and innocuous as the post office. NPR has, quote, objective and balanced coverage. That's the assessment of Jack Mitchell, the first producer of NPR's All Things Considered, who spoke with me recently about the evolution of NPR over the years. He left NPR over 25 years ago and is now Professor Emeritus at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Regarding the quality of NPR's coverage, Mitchell said that it's not that different from the tone of the New York Times, which is sadly true. According to NPR's own ethics handbook, quote, fair, accurate, impartial reporting is the foundation of NPR's news coverage, unquote. However, it is critical to understand that there is no such thing as impartiality in the media. The decisions made every day regarding what stories to cover, how much time to devote to a particular point of view, whom to talk to, whom not to talk to, and what tone and style should be employed when telling a story, all represent subjective positions and points of view. Anyone who claims that their outlet is objective is high on their own fumes. NPR's own Nina Totenberg concedes this point. She said, quote, Objectivity should never be confused with fairness. Nobody is purely objective. It's not possible. What all of us are capable of is fairness, unquote. Now, like all press outlets, NPR has a particular point of view. Its bias is just as profound as the likes of MSNBC or Fox News. But NPR is perhaps even more pernicious because it presents itself as a model of objective journalistic integrity and balance, posturing as an institution that is above all of the common rage-selling, opinionating, and infotainment. But NPR's bias is not simply left-leaning or right-leaning. Its coverage embodies a bias that is thoroughly of and in service of the mainstream establishment, or what could be called the American bipartisan consensus. Any view that does not adhere to this consensus, or to received journalistic pieties, whether it comes from the left or the right, will be given short shrift on NPR. Regardless of whether a mainstream news outlet such as NPR dresses itself up in the accoutrements of the left or the right, it will generally prostrate itself before power, money, and the status quo. Now, what are some of the principal characteristics of the American bipartisan consensus? Firstly, entrenched establishment media outlets such as NPR that follow this consensus will take for granted the dominant neoliberal ideology of our political and social discourse that has been ascendant since at least the Reagan and Thatcher era. The ideology of neoliberalism, a symptom of unrestrained capitalism, which seeks to conform every aspect of the society to the amoral dictates of the, quote, free market by any means necessary, including through calculated use of violence, is a poison that infects our culture, has little to nothing to do with the classical liberalism propounded by those such as Adam Smith. It has no grasp of the cyclical nature of human history, which contradicts its utopian delusions. And, as we are most concerned with here, it has a predictable framework and expression in our media. 
The American bipartisan consensus assumes that certain things are not to be the subject of serious public or, for that matter, private debate. An outlet such as NPR, staffed with true believers in the religion of neoliberalism, will generally give credence to the overarching system of capitalism. It will accept the tired principles of globalization, free trade agreements, and free markets. It will give tacit approval to the idea of meristocracy, that our economic system is not fundamentally flawed, nor built on enforced inequality and class warfare, but rather that it is just in need of some tweaks here and there for everyone to thrive. It will pay fealty to official authorities and experts, specialists, those who are credentialed, and lend legitimacy to their pronouncements. NPR calls upon the usual cast of establishment talking heads, government officials, mainstream think tanks, and corporate mouthpieces to help analyze the daily news. Analyze, just a word for disseminating their establishment talking points. As Ralph Nader has pointed out, quote, These news outlets seem oblivious to the blatant economic conflicts of interest inherent in groups such as the Heritage Foundation, the American Enterprise Institute, and professors who moonlight with corporations. These interviewees have economic and ideological axes to grind that are not disclosed to the general viewers, listeners, and readers when they are merely described as experts, unquote. A mainstream outlet such as NPR will implicitly accept the notion of American exceptionalism, having only credulity for the goodwill of Western militaries and states. It will give more emphasis to the crimes of official enemies of, it, of the outlet's home state, such as Russia in the case of the U.S., while simultaneously downplaying or ignoring the crimes of its own state. And it will generally accept the notion that increased representation of racial and gender minorities within institutions is itself a form of justice and not what it actually is, a way for those institutions to co-opt whole categories of people to become complicit in their odious systems while conveniently leaving out the question of the need for a diversity of class, education, and ideology within those systems. Not to mention the possibility of dismantling those systems altogether. Now, as Jack Mitchell put it, They are allegedly going for a diverse audience by talking about these issues, but their audience becomes no more diverse. There are really no more black people watching, listening to NPR than there ever were, which is not very many, uh, primarily because of education. Uh, but... But they're really satisfying the academic liberals who love diversity. <laughs> so being diverse is actually appealing more to the, the core NPR audience. It's just kind of reinforcing that audience as opposed to actually diversifying the audience. This mainstream bias in the media, which is an old problem, has more recently been attended by an extreme partisanization of audiences. According to 2019 Pew Research data shown in this table, NPR is the fourth most partisan network in terms of listener partisan affiliation behind MSNBC, Fox News, and the New York Times. The NPR listener base is also highly skewed toward the white, liberal, relatively young, and highly educated. 
87% of NPR listeners support the Democratic Party or lean that way. 68% of listeners are college graduates, making NPR the second most skewed by education after the Times. And not coincidentally, many of NPR's most prominent reporters are culled from the halls of elite universities. And we'll take a closer look at that, um, the issue of homogeneity of education in NPR specifically, but in the media more generally a bit later on. As Michael P. McCauley, a former reporter, puts it, rather smarmily, I must say, in his book, NPR, The Trials and Triumphs of National Public Radio, he writes, quote, A college education, and the mature set of values that come with it, is the primary variable that predicts whether a person will listen to public radio, unquote. Additionally, 75% of NPR listeners identify as white, only second to Fox News's 87% white. Mitchell said, quote, NPR is liberal, no question, but most listeners who listen to it don't perceive that because they're liberal too, and it seems right. He goes on to characterize the politics of NPR staff and listeners. So the politics of the audience and the politics of the staff, which tend to be the same, uh, socially very liberal. I mean, they are were sympathetic toward gay rights you know, 30 years ago before it was fashionable. Uh, you know, women's rights, uh, Black Lives Matter. This is all stuff that resonates with the uh, socially liberal college educated people who uh, were uh, you know, who make up much of the Democratic Party and who are in fact, you know, make up much of the public radio audience. There is not much interest, as much interest, in major economic reform uh, among those those audiences. I mean, they're doing pretty well themselves. Uh, they probably own stock in companies, and they're they're not, or if they're not directly through their pension funds or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the it, it's not revolutionary economically. I mean, I don't think very many public radio listeners or staff really want to uh, break up General Motors. Not that that's a big deal anymore, but uh, let's let's see who's oh, break up Amazon. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, it's it's just uh, there's not a, an economic liberalism that goes along quite with social liberalism. And that's true. I'd say mainstream, the mainstream Democratic Party, Elizabeth Warren is an exception, but the is not involved in, doesn't have those kind of policies. The New York Times doesn't really reflect that kind of attitude. Uh, I don't know that it's because the corporations are sponsoring it. It's that the comfortable audience doesn't want to become economically uncomfortable. You know, it's just not something that burns in their souls that until what are we going to do about economic uh, reform, corporate reform, mm-hmm. uh, antitrust, you know, who talks about that anymore? Uh, it's, well, maybe a little bit, that much. And it's not part of the mainstream 
liberal, uh, I say moderately liberal or center right, center left kind of thing. Uh, Public radio was never radical. New York Times was never radical. Mainstream media are not radical. Public is not radical. Now, what Mitchell refers to there as radical is what I would simply call sensical and far past due antitrust enforcement that used to be standard practice in the U.S., as well as an ability to see through the official lies of the U.S. state, but I'll defer that point for now. He is correct in saying that the public is not radical. Given this, shouldn't public radio reflect the mostly middle-of-the-road views that the great mass of the public has? The problem with that framing is it leaves aside that mainstream media are not just moderate in their analysis, moderate being a code word for the acceptance of establishment orthodoxies and the dogma of the powerful, not a reflection of the views of the common man, they also have major blind spots in their coverage of power. There are major stories that corporate media give scant coverage to, which is a result of the structures of the press as an embedded institution. These blind spots don't reflect a moderate bias. They reflect an inability of the mainstream press to properly critique overarching structures by virtue of their assimilation into and dependence upon those very same structures. Mitchell makes a good point about how most mainstream media outlets operate these days. He notes that media outlets have shifted toward a model of appealing to very particular audiences along cultural and ideological lines. Matt Taibbi explicates this same trend in his book, Hate, Inc. And Taibbi writes that as Fox News cornered the market on the demographic of, quote, 55 to dead, in the words of the late former network boss Roger Ailes, and then became the most watched cable news station in the country, other news outlets began following that same model of picking a political side that appealed to a particular population and sticking to it. Now, the implications of this extremely profitable business model are worrying when it comes to a broad, well-informed citizenry. Once a network starts picking political sides, if a particular issue cannot be blamed on either the left or the right, then who wants to tell the story? Taibbi writes, quote, If both parties have an equal or near-equal hand in causing a social problem, we typically don't cover it. He goes on, The bloated military budget, mass surveillance, American support for dictatorial regimes like the cannibalistic Mabasago family in Equatorial Guinea, the United Arab Emirates or Saudi Arabia, our culpability in proxy nation atrocities in places like Yemen or Palestine, the drone assassination program, rendition, torture, the drug war, absence of access to generic or re-imported drugs. Nah, we just don't do those stories. At least, we don't do them anywhere near in proportion to their social impact. They're hard to sell. And the ability to market a story is everything, unquote. NPR is not at the same level as MSNBC or Fox News in terms of its commercial pressures, its tone, or its use of infotainment. NPR does do some stories on systemic issues, albeit within the general mainstream framework. 
But looking at the makeup of its audience, NPR is just as siloed off as any other corporate outlet. Once an outlet is reliant upon a homogenous audience and staffed with journalists who match that demographic, unspoken pressures are exerted on a newsroom to stay within the ideological bounds that are most comfortable to those demographics. NPR knows its audience and is likely to cater to its liberal listeners' interests. Now, Macaulay, who I mentioned before, was a former journalist. He worked as a radio journalist. He writes that for public radio, this fixation on catering to the values of a particular audience is seen as necessary to its financial survival. He writes, quote, Audience research helped public radio fuse its programs more snugly to the values, beliefs, and attitudes of the people who tuned in and pledged their financial support most often, unquote. Those who have worked in public radio, such as Macaulay and Mitchell, recognize that no single radio station can try to serve the entire public. Mitchell said, quote, Our media is so splittered that I'm not sure there can be a place that everybody trusts or feels confident in, because they'll have lots of people, places that they can go to that are, they hear nothing that's going to be bothersome to them. <laughs> Why be, make yourself uncomfortable when you can be in a comfortable place, be it uh, Rush Limbaugh or NPR? Mm-hmm. Who wants to be uncomfortable? Yeah. <laughs> Who wants to be questioned? Over the years, then, NPR has essentially become a product specifically designed by its liberal, college-educated staff, paid for by its liberal, college-educated listeners, and sponsored by corporations who pay for access to that audience. NPR's website for corporate sponsorship explains that, quote, NPR has no list of sources from which funding will be refused, unquote. And NPR has repeatedly defended its practice of accepting corporate sponsorships from the fossil fuel industry, including ExxonMobil and America's Natural Gas Alliance. It has justified this practice on the grounds that, quote, to impose a litmus test to accept or reject funding from an organization would create the appearance that NPR as a news organization has taken a position on the issues related to that organization, unquote. And NPR would no longer, quote, be seen as fair and unbiased if someone inside the organization had decided that sponsorship from one side or the other was objectionable, unquote. Now, NPR entices corporate sponsors in part by touting their halo effect, which is what it can give to a company's reputation, meaning, as they put it, the positive association and shared values that NPR listeners attribute to the companies that sponsor us, unquote. So if that halo effect is real, and NPR insists it is, then by their own admission, they are funded in part by burnishing the reputation of, of the fossil fuel industry. NPR's leadership has fully bought into this kind of funding model of receiving as much corporate sponsorships and private money as they can get. They have corporate advertisements, which were once considered verboten on public radio, that have now been accepted as a facet of NPR's news programs. This reliance on securing corporate dollars using the lure of NPR's well-off audience 
very much influences the programming decisions of the organization as much as they would like to pretend that it doesn't. NPR's former president, Delano Lewis, once spoke to Macaulay about the need to attract corporate dollars. He said, quote, If you're going to solicit money from corporations or foundations, they are interested now in your reach. They're interested in the audiences that you serve and the returns that they may see from reaching those audiences, unquote. Some programs just don't make the cut. In 1995, NPR canceled nine of its cultural programs, some of which were meant to serve minority audiences, and 20 people lost their jobs as a result. Macaulay notes that Lewis, quote, regretted the loss of these programs, but said their small audiences attracted little in the way of badly needed private funds. That's just one example. And in this sense, it's difficult to see how NPR is capable of fulfilling its original mission to be an ad-free, non-commercial service operating chiefly in the interest of the diverse public. But that's exactly what NPR was supposed to be. The history of NPR starts in 1967 with President Lyndon B. Johnson's Public Broadcasting Act, which established the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, or CPB, under which NPR would be founded in 1970. In a speech in October 1967, Johnson made clear that the intention of the act was for broadcasting to serve the public interest, as well as to provide education. He said, quote, the corporation will assist stations and producers who aim for the best in broadcasting good music, in broadcasting exciting plays, and in broadcasting reports on the whole fascinating range of human activity. It will try to prove that what educates can also be exciting. It will get part of its support from our government, but it will be carefully guarded from government or from party control. It will be free, and it will be independent, and it will belong to all of our people." Unquote. At the outset, NPR emphasized drawing from the voices of the real people, not the experts, as Mitchell put it. Mitchell put it in, Mitchell said that it was to be representative of the entire country. The assumption was that all kinds of people would listen to this because all kinds of people were represented. NPR's first mission statement, the NPR Purposes, written by program director Bill Simmering, called for NPR to, quote, celebrate the human experience as infinitely varied rather than vacuous and banal, to help citizens develop a sense of active, constructive participation in society rather than apathetic helplessness, and speak with many voices and many dialects, unquote. Simmering had not been a journalist. His background was in educational radio, Mitchell recalls him as a philosopher, a dreamer, a wonderful human being, who believed in featuring common people. Now, Macaulay notes that before NPR, Seemering had opened a storefront radio studio in a minority neighborhood that helped residents communicate their interests and concerns to a wider audience. Macaulay writes that Seemering had a 1960s mentality of wanting to uplift the downtrodden masses, and quotes the Corporation for Public Broadcasting's Al Hewson, who said, I think there was a whole group of people, and Bill Seemering stands out among that group, that said, there are resources all over the United States that can be tapped for national enlightenment. 
that ideas are not restricted to the East Coast or Europe. They're all over the world, in the smallest places, in the biggest places. There are brilliant minds everywhere that could solve human problems and put society ahead and stop war, unquote. For a time at the start, NPR prominently featured average people in its programming. Mitchell described the early days when they would call up people around the country. And in fact, in the early days when Susan Stenberg was hosting and I was producing, uh, we had people around the country who were kind of our, our, our observers. Uh, there was a guy named Charlie in Kansas, and Charlie was very He's a, he's a farmer, but a very thoughtful guy. And we used to call him every month or so and see what's going on. And we had a woman in Wisconsin. I forgot what her name was. But very, she's a housewife. You know, she, you know, that's, she just took care of the house like most, most women did at that time. Mm-hmm. But once again, a very thoughtful person. And so we had these people, we, <laughs> the real voices. NPR used to have what they called sound portraits, interviews with everyday people talking about their occupations at length, from mechanics to balloon salesmen. Real voices, Mitchell calls them. Mitchell also recalls NPR's method of covering a strike at a Chevrolet plant in Ohio with potentially unpredictable on-air results. And uh, one proud moment, <laughs> we had, there was a strike going on in Lordstown, Ohio, at the Chevrolet plant there. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, what are we going to do? Should we, you know, how are we going to cover this? <laughs> we got the phone number of uh, the, the telephone booth, you know, in the lunchroom at Lordstown. We called it. Whoever answered the phone, we talked to them. Uh, you know, so we did a lot of that. We, I, and Susan, and Susan was really important, very influential in the anti-hard news approach. Uh, you know, the, and uh, so we were trying to get you know more ordinary people on, uh, and so we did that. But as Mitchell admits, Bill Seemering's vision was highly romantic and not terribly realistic. At the same time, Mitchell said, "Quote." I thought we were an alternative to the mainstream media. By 1978 to 79, about the time that Morning Edition began, NPR made a real major change of pace to move from being an alternative to being competitive. That I did not anticipate, unquote. Around 1976, taking the advice of private consultants, NPR decided to become more respectable and professional giving voice to experts instead of average people and hiring more people with an, and hiring more people with journalism backgrounds to staff its programs and so we had this conflict between the uh, the the ideal that had been laid out by Seemering, which was as i say was never terribly realistic and uh, then the desire of many, many of the staff people to be mainstream the goal was to become the best journalistic organization it could be, Mitchell said. As this conflict came to a head, Mitchell left NPR along with the rest of the top management. Then, a liberal democratic journalist, as Mitchell describes Frank Mankiewicz, he was brought in to reorient the stations as NPR's new president. Perhaps partly due to this mainstream shift, NPR has been able to cultivate a very elite good audience 
a rather well-fixed, rather comfortable audience who would be willing to pay for it, Mitchell said. Essentially, public radio sells that audience to corporations. Today, public radio listeners and private corporations make up most of the funding for NPR. Corporate sponsorships comprise the largest portion of NPR's revenue, totaling around 37% of its total budget. As Mitchell points out, there are two reasons NPR doesn't need government money anymore. NPR gets a lot of private money, and as he put it, quote, government never came through anyway. Macaulay wrote in 2005 that because, quote, the amount of federal money earmarked for public radio has dwindled to about 14% of the industry's annual budget, 33% if you include money from state and local governments, and income from private sources, such as pledge drives and corporate underwriting, accounts for a little more than half of the funding mix, America's public radio system must, as a matter of survival, focus its programming and fundraising efforts on the highly educated audience that covets its programs most, unquote. Now, to me, that sounds like a self-fulfilling prophecy, and it's not how things used to be. NPR was originally funded entirely by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That funding was significantly cut under the Reagan administration. The bulk of the funding was then shifted onto the backs of the local public radio stations and their listeners' wallets, as those stations now had to pay for access to NPR programming. CPB later received a 25% cut during the Gingrich-led Congress of the 1990s. NPR has been a long-time target for defunding by the right wing. President Trump threatened to cut funding for CPB in 2020. In the warped political spectrum of the United States, any media outlet that is not Fox News is considered rabidly left-wing. Now, facing decreasing funding from the federal government, instead of lobbying Congress for guaranteed taxpayer dollars, in 2003, NPR's then-president, Kevin Close, secured a bequest of $225 million from Joan Kroc, heiress of the McDonald's fortune. NPR journalist Susan Stamberg joked at the time about changing her name to Susan McStamberg. It was this infusion of cash into NPR's endowment which helped it to expand its news staff across the country and around the world, and it later opened its West Coast offices at Culver City, California. This is how our, quote, public services stay on life support, not through universal public funding, but through the whims of private philanthropy. Now, Macaulay is blunt in defending NPR's shift to serving educated elites and declining to produce programming that speaks to or is spoken by the disenfranchised, citing the superior market performance of the existing model. He writes, quote, Many of NPR's leftist critics assume that public radio should promote the interests of society's disenfranchised groups, thereby helping them to gain a wider audience. The logic fails on a number of counts. First, radio has become a narrow-cast medium in which individual stations thrive by super-serving discrete segments of the overall audience. If Pacifica Radio is committed to serving disenfranchised groups, there's no logical compulsion for national public radio to do the same. NPR airs many stories and programs about these groups, phrased in a manner that speaks to the sensibilities of its core listeners. 
If NPR stations offered something for everyone in their daily schedules, their overall appeal for current listeners would drop markedly, unquote. Now, speaking just for myself, I don't necessarily need NPR to promote the interests of society's disenfranchised groups, but I do need it to stop promoting the interests of our collective oppressors by treating every powerful U.S. official with kid gloves as if they are an oracle and a representative of a legitimate government and therefore worthy of respect. Mitchell doesn't see NPR going back to the way it used to be, when shows took calls of average listeners. He said, and you don't hear that on public radio or anywhere else, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's people, you know, they just say their predictable things without real, real clash of opinions. And I, I think that's discussion. You know, it's in this sense that, you know, I'm basically an univer- overly educated university person, just like most of them. <laughs> but you know, universities are about should be about debating ideas and real debate doesn't happen on public radio. And I I wish it would. Mm -hmm. Now NPR's talk of the nation, which did receive audience calls and emails as limited and screened as they were, was canceled in 2013. NPR officials said the decision was part of a quote, move away from opinion and towards straightforward storytelling, unquote. But who gets to tell the stories. Mitchell adds that presenting opposing points of view is of interest to the general public according to the Fairness Doctrine, which was established in 1947, and as explained by the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, was, quote, required licensed radio and television broadcasters to present fair and balanced coverage of controversial issues of interest to their communities, unquote. In 1987, the Reagan administration rescinded the doctrine, which helped lead to the partisanship we see today on the airwaves and on social media. Furthermore, as Nader laments, NPR's airtime is increasingly intruded on by advertisements. He said, quote, What started as just a little bit of commercial sponsorship when Congress got tight some years ago has now gone wild. Do we really, do we really need to be reminded that support for this station, or for NPR, comes from XYZ contributors about 30 times an hour, mind-numbing, hour after hour, unquote. Ultimately, as CPB notes on their website, NPR is a, quote, private-public partnership in the best tradition of America's free enterprise system, unquote. And that is exactly the problem. NPR has become a product of the free enterprise system rather than a truly public service which could bring listeners ideas that do not receive airtime on privatized media, ideas that also might happen to challenge that same free market system. Now, let us take a closer look at a few key issues which help to demonstrate NPR's mainstream bias in their news coverage. Broadly, These issues fall under a few distinct categories. One category is NPR's own warped view of what impartiality means. It is also its deference, NPR's deference, to democratic party ideology. It is also its NPR's ideological proximity to powerful powerful institutions, meaning 
that NPR's ideology is incredibly similar to the dominant neoliberal ideology that is the driving force in Western nations today. And this ideology limits the scope of its news stories and precludes a political vision that might challenge those dominant ideologies. And the staffing choices at NPR match the larger trend of upper-class elitism and professionalization in journalism. Those are the categories that I want to take a look at. So first, let's examine how NPR's appeals to impartiality result in their journalists becoming what I like to call the dispassionate robots of NPR. Now, NPR has an ethics handbook that, on its face, seems intended to ensure that no NPR employee engages in partisanship, unfairness, or what could be considered impropriety, but in reality has the effect of turning NPR reporters into dispassionate, status quo-selling robots who legitimize some of our worst institutions. We can look, for instance, at the particular words NPR chooses to use when telling a story. NPR's ethic handbook states, quote, We avoid loaded words preferred by a particular side in a debate. We write and speak in ways that will illuminate issues, not inflame them, unquote. Well, this section of NPR's ethics handbook certainly didn't help NPR illuminate one of the key facts of America's war on terror. In 2009, NPR defended their position of not using the word torture to describe the torture that was carried out by the CIA and the military under the Bush administration because, quote, this is how they defended themselves, the word torture is loaded with political and social implications for several reasons including the fact that torture is illegal under U.S. law and international treaties the United States has signed. Okay, so, (laughs) out of a desire not to inflame or use words with political implications, we should avoid calling something torture, even though it's torture, because those who carried it out and ordered it to happen committed an international crime. And we don't want to sound like we're accusing any powerful people of having committed a grievous crime. What a stunning and brave stance that is, NPR. Now, NPR's ombudsman, Alicia Shepard, went even further in response to backlash that they received from listeners, stating, quote, The bottom line is whether waterboarding is torture is still a matter of political debate, even if some listeners don't agree. Unquote. That is truly shocking. It is not just some listeners that don't agree. It's also Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the Committee Committee Against Torture, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, and the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. This is what I mean when I say that NPR is full of dispassionate robots. Alicia Shepard, their ombudsman, is a morally unreliable robot. And I would love for her to look a Guantanamo detainee or an Abu Ghraib survivor in the eyes and tell them that what happened to them can't be definitively said to be torture because it's still up for political debate. What a joke. Avoiding loaded words means that NPR will not call torture, torture. It will not call the apartheid state of Israel, a key U.S. ally, the apartheid state of Israel. 
despite the judgments of Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, B'Tselem, and the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in the Occupied Territories of Palestine. NPR further defers to Israeli interests by never using the State of Palestine label for the State of Palestine. The NPR style guides entry on Israeli settlement on Israeli settlements in East Jerusalem says, quote, Do not use words like disputed or controversial. While these are not wrong, they are inflammatory, and any word is going to be disagreeable to someone. Just say East Jerusalem, West Bank, settlement, without descriptives, unquote. So, again, NPR journalists cannot even say the Israeli settlements are controversial, which they are, let alone that they are illegal, which they are. NPR will not say that the U.S. war in Iraq was a criminal invasion. NPR will not dare to call figures such as Henry Kissinger, George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, and Barack Obama what they clearly are, war criminals that must be brought to justice for the countless deaths they have on their hands. It will not call the CEOs and the Wall Street tycoons who orchestrated the financial crisis with its resulting millions of foreclosures, firings, and erasure of savings account, savings accounts as what they truly are. Thieves that are walking around scot-free with our money. Avoiding loaded language does not mean that you are being fair and balanced. It means that you are perpetuating injustice in service of powerful, venal human beings. And NPR also prides itself on being impartial, but it has an odd definition of impartiality in practice. Take, for instance, this excerpt on impartiality from the handbook. It says, quote, We avoid speaking to groups where the appearance itself might put in question our impartiality. This includes situations where our appearance may seem to endorse the agenda of a group or organization, unquote. Well, that rule didn't stop NPR's ombudsman Jeffrey Dvorkin or NPR's Juan Williams from speaking at the CIA on separate occasions upon the intelligence agency's invitation. During his talk, Juan Williams even went so far as to call CIA employees the best and the brightest, where have we heard that before, and said that Americans admired the CIA and trusted it to guide the nation and the nation's future. This is the same NPR that fired two employees at affiliate stations for daring to just show up at Occupy Wall Street protests. Apparently that is an overt political statement that tarnishes the credibility and impartiality of NPR, but being a guest speaker at the CIA is no problem. Journalists in mainstream media are considered impartial and are allowed to give talks to intelligence agencies so long as they go along with nationalist cant and cheer for the proper team. In this case, the foreign affairs interfering, coup d'etat doing, domestic surveilling, press manipulating, warmongering, torturing, and genocidal CIA. And how ironic it is for a reporter, a journalist, to go to the CIA and give a speech lauding CIA members, even though it is a well-established fact that the CIA has had a hand in promulgating 
propaganda and false stories to the press for, at this point, generations. That is not a new story. That is well known. And <laughs> NPR's Juan Williams seems to be completely unaware of that. Or if he is aware, doesn't seem to think it's a problem. As long as you stay on the side of those intelligence agencies as a reporter, you're fine. But if you express your opposition to those same warmongering institutions, now you're being partial. Truth and justice are of minor concern for establishment journalists in comparison to impartially applauding our permanent, unpetitionable state within a state, the intelligence agencies. It does not matter what the pretext of the invitation is. If you, as a journalist, are invited to give a talk at the CIA and you do anything short of get your hands on secret documents and throw a Molotov cocktail into the office of the CIA director, then you are participating in mutual oral sex between yourself and CIA personnel. In other words, you're not being a journalist. You're being an obsequious bootlicker and servile courtier of power. This is the same NPR that admonished its longtime commentator, Koki Roberts, for having the gall to write a piece that was openly critical of Donald Trump before he received the Republican nomination for president in 2016. So, according to NPR, it's not okay to publicly criticize a presidential candidate, but it's totally fine to lie by calling torture-enhanced interrogation on their airwaves. NPR's ethics handbook also says, quote, Fair, accurate, impartial reporting is the foundation of NPR news coverage. Unquote. This impartiality does not engender trust in journalism. It engenders righteous scorn for an institution that gives cover to our oppressors by refusing to accurately call things what they are. What NPR describes as their standard tone of cordiality, Ralph Nader more accurately describes as, quote, commercialism, and amiable stupefaction. When NPR claims that it is maintaining journalistic integrity by adhering to notions of impartiality, what it means is that it is choosing to speak in inoffensive tones that are perfectly acceptable to elites. It is choosing to defer to the neoliberal status quo establishment powers and consensus by refraining from using adversarial language in its news coverage. Such an approach is particularly bad for their foreign policy coverage. Let's take a recent example, the protests in Iran after the death of a Kurdish woman who had been taken into police custody for allegedly failing to abide by the dress code for women. According to The Guardian, witnesses say she was beaten by the morality police. NPR's choice of words about these protests? The Iranian protests are about, quote, personal freedoms, the economy, the environment, unquote. The word sanction appears nowhere in the NPR article, even though Iran has been under some form of sanctions by the U.S. since 1979, the year of the Islamic Revolution, with brief pauses during the Obama and Bush years for humanitarian crises and as part of the nuclear deal, which Trump then withdrew from. Might those U.S. sanctions have something to do with the economy, as NPR puts it? The World Socialist website more accurately describes the situation. They write, quote, The protests in Iran are being fueled by a rapidly deteriorating economic crisis, produced above all 
by the devastating impact of a brutal sanctions regime enforced by the imperialist powers that is tantamount to war, unquote. Another thing that NPR claims to pride itself on is its attempts to hear from diverse voices. According to NPR's Ethics Handbook, again, they write, quote, Hearing from a variety of people makes our journalism stronger and more complete. In our reporting, we seek various perspectives on an issue, as well as the evidence supporting or countering each one. We try to understand minority viewpoints, as well as those of recognized authorities. We don't ignore perspectives merely because they are less popular, unquote. Yet, in the very next paragraph, NPR admits it will give more coverage to those in power. It writes, quote, Those individuals whose roles give them an outsized influence in how events play out will necessarily receive more attention in our news coverage. But it's important for our audience to hear from a variety of stakeholders on any issue, including those who are often marginalized, unquote. Unfortunately, the people that NPR considers to have an outsized influence on how events play out are not the people that news coverage ought to be highlighting. NPR is more likely to interview someone from a think tank, a high-ranking lawmaker, not the people who are most affected by those power brokers. So much for treating our friendly neighborhood balloon salesmen as equally worthy of airtime. The mainstream journalistic, quote, respect for different viewpoints usually only refers to liberal or conservative viewpoints, left or right. But just thinking in those terms of left versus right is more obfuscating than it is clarifying. Firstly, these shallow and increasingly unuseful terms of left and right gloss over key areas where anti-establishment thinkers of the left and the right are in agreement, such as in the belief that the dominant institutions of power are far past due for an overthrow. NPR's claims of recognition for both minority viewpoints and authorities, their understanding of liberal and conservative perspectives, actually excludes most other political viewpoints out there, particularly ones which are adversarial to the kind of mainstream model that NPR represents. It is difficult, if not impossible, to find national public radio giving fair hearings to any members of the public who articulate views that are considered to be from the political wilderness. Where, on NPR, are the public anti-imperialists, socialists, anarchists, communists, fascists, fundamentalist pastafarians, radical environmentalists, eco-terrorists, black nationalists, pan-Africanists, or anti-state militants being asked what they think about current events. NPR's impartiality, as they put it, does not have much room for non-mainstream voices. Many perspectives actually do get ignored on NPR. The typical commentary we usually get on NPR is something like an interview with a dismal member of the U.S. State Department, followed up by a counterpoint offered by an employee of a U.S.-funded think tank. How enlightening. Actually, why should they even go through the trouble of interviewing such people? A chimpanzee would be able to predict what the State Department's stance will be on any given issue. Let's just get the chimp to write up a transcript, responding to the latest Israeli war crime, and let's have Mary Louise Kelly read that on air. We support an investigation, and we'll follow the facts. Great. Job well done. That's all you needed. 
just make sure that the chimp doesn't try to insert any follow-up questions to Secretary of State Anthony Blinken on how the U.S. is actually going to hold Israel accountable for the murder of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, now that Israel has finally admitted it is responsible for her death. What about Shireen Abu Akleh? She was murdered by Israeli forces. Right, CNN just agreed to this. These are your two greatest allies in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia and Israel. They have murdered American journalists and there have been absolutely no repercussions. And you're sitting up here talking about the freedom of press and democracy. The United States is denying sovereignty to tens of millions of people around the world with draconian sanctions for electing leaders that you do not like. Why is there no accountability for Israel or Saudi Arabia for murdering journalists? It is one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a journalist in Palestine. I deplore the loss of uh, Shireen. Uh, she was a remarkable journalist, an American citizen, uh, as you all know. And there, too, we are determined to follow the facts and get to the truth. The facts of what happened. Secretary Blinken, no, they have not been, no, they, I'm respect. sorry, with respect, they have not yet been established. Yes, we're looking for, no, they have not. But we're looking for an independent, credible investigation. When that investigation happens, we will follow the facts wherever they lead. It's, it's uh, as straightforward as that. That has not yet happened, but it's something that we very much want to see happen. And we'll have time after Thank the you. panel. NPR is subject to the same inertia, consensus-seeking, tone moderation, and nationalist deference to state, capital, and military interests as any large corporate media outlet, all the while claiming that it is balanced above it all and not in any way influenced by its underwriters. Now, moving from the subject of NPR's tone of cordiality and impartiality, there are many examples that you can look at to see how their coverage is generally framed in ways that are deferential to the Democratic Party. NPR's audience and staff is composed overwhelmingly of college-educated liberals, the same demographic that dominates the Democratic Party. As the journalist Thomas Frank explains in his book, Listen Liberal, he writes, quote, Today the Democrats are the party of the professional class. The party has other constituencies, to be sure, minorities, women, and the young, for example, the other pieces of the coalition of the ascendant. But professionals are the ones whose technocratic outlook tends to prevail. It is their tastes that are celebrated by liberal newspapers, and it is their particular way of regarding the world that is taken for granted by liberals as being objectively true, unquote. NPR's coverage will generally frame things in ways that do not go beyond the bounds of the Democratic Party line. For example, in a discussion between NPR's Mary Louise Kelly and Mara Liasson, the two poo-pooed Bernie Sanders' 2020 campaign with uninformed opinions presented as fact. Most glaringly, they stated confidently that Sanders' progressive policy proposals, such as Medicare for All, are unpopular, even though consistent polling shows that they actually are popular. This undermining of Medicare for All falls in line with the official Democratic Party platform, which emphasizes expanding access to private health insurance, not universal socialized medicine. Piece after piece on NPR mocked Sanders' electability prospects despite his campaign's record-breaking small-dollar donations, polling which showed he fared better than Trump, that significant numbers of people who voted for Sanders in the 2016 primary went on to vote for Trump and would do so again in 2020, 
and that Biden looks and sounds like he needs to be hooked up to life support. NPR breathlessly reported that the Russian government was trying to help the 2020 Sanders campaign without ever acknowledging in that story that those claims were strategically leaked by the U.S. intelligence community, an institution not exactly known for its benevolence or truth-telling, but is well known for its long record of interference in democratic elections, both foreign and domestic, and in mass murder campaigns carried out against its enemies. And these leaks came at a time when Sanders was ascendant in the polls. That NPR story also relied on an analysis of the Russian-funded outlets RT, or Russian television, and Sputnik. That analysis found, shockingly, that Sanders was mentioned more positively than other candidates by those outlets. How awful. Oh my god. Like, one wonders what biases would be found by a similar analysis of Voice of America, or CNN, or MSNBC. It's ridiculous. This establishment bias against Sanders, embodied by NPR, is in accordance with the corporate-friendly Democratic Party's corruption in rigging the 2016 primary against Sanders. The Democratic Party and the corporations that support it would rather have Trump in the White House than a Democratic Socialist. They would rather have loyal apparatchiks accountable to moneyed interests than leftists who are actually accountable to the citizenry. And these puppet masters are the voices that predominate on NPR. NPR's bias towards the mainstream of the Democratic Party also serves to obfuscate the true function of the Democratic Party. It is a hypocritical organization masquerading as a rival to the Republicans that is, in fact, a full partner with the Republican Party in selling out the vulnerable to the whims of capitalism and imperialism, and which clings to its rotten power built atop the desiccated corpse of our republic at a ghastly price that our countrymen are only faintly beginning to apprehend. The two dominant American political parties are two sides of the same capitalist's coin. Treating them as true rivals is either disingenuous or deluded. NPR also consistently gives cover to what some would call the ineptitude of the Democrats, but what I would call actions by design. In a recent story about President Biden's dismally low popularity, NPR's Domenico Montanaro blames Biden's poll numbers on Senator Joe Manchin's obstruction, his actions in the Senate that's have been blocking some of the more progressive policy proposals that Biden promised he would get passed. Manchin, assiduously serving as the rotating villain, is a perfect excuse for a conservative figure such as Joe Biden to throw up his hands and say that he just can't accomplish any of those promised progressive policy proposals that he actually had no intention of making happen anyway while reporters, such as Montanaro, give credence to the notion that Biden actually does have his hands tied by lack of cooperation within his own party. The story also notes that there is talk of a Democrat besides Biden running for president in 2024. And who does Montanaro list as potential candidates? The even more unpopular Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg, who isn't mentioned 
Bernie Sanders. Our vision of the politically possible is thereby occluded by NPR. As media critic Norman Solomon put it, to the extent that NPR is balanced, it is, quote, ideologically balanced between the views of the Gingriches and the Clintons, unquote. And perhaps more to the point, as Professor Robin Anderson put it in a piece criticizing that aforementioned discussion between Mary Louise Kelly and Mara Eliasson about Bernie Sanders, she said that the ignorance that undergirds the majority of analysis that is presented on NPR is, quote, willful and finds its roots in a profoundly ideological position, an ideology adopted by journalists who favor and are rewarded by corporate arguments promoted by corporate Democrats, unquote. Spoken like a true Naderite. Now, this concept of who gets rewarded in mainstream media and who gets punished or pushed aside is essential to understanding why certain worldviews receive widespread airtime and others do not. Those who succeed in the business of establishment journalism, and as discussed before, NPR is in no way immune from the degrading effects of the corporatization of journalism, woefully dependent as NPR is on corporate dollars, syndication fees, and intrusive on-air ads touting their donors, the people who thrive are journalists who know what the acceptable boundaries of speech are and obediently stay inside them. Troublemakers or truth-tellers don't succeed. They're marginalized, asked to leave, or fired. Now, the contention here is not that NPR reporters who stray from corporate-friendly neoliberal doctrine have someone from on high overtly censoring their speech. Such authoritarianism is not required for effective thought control. Rather, those who follow popular consensus and are able to articulate positions held by the elite class are rewarded with successful careers, primetime host positions, and various accolades, whereas those who stray from the righteous path and antagonize popular consensus are assigned to cover Elks Lodge events. In just one demonstrable case of this, journalist Chris Hedges was ousted from the New York Times for the crime of making public statements against the horrific U.S. invasion of Iraq. Hedges bluntly describes the kind of grooming that occurs in establishment newsrooms. He writes, quote, Careerists pay lip service to the stated ideals of the institution, which are couched in lofty rhetoric about balance, impartiality, and neutrality, but astutely grasp the actual guiding principle of the paper, which is, do not significantly alienate the corporate and political power elite on whom the institution depends for access and money. Those who master this duplicitous game do well. Those who cling tenaciously to a desire to tell the truth, even at a cost to themselves and the institution, become a management problem." Unquote. This kind of filtering ensures that a certain kind of ideology, disguised as being objective, will remain ascendant in influential establishment newsrooms, while divergent views will be shunted aside. Eminent scholar and general pain in the ass to neoliberal ideology Noam Chomsky describes this same phenomenon to a BBC reporter here. Um, 
tell me how that works. Is it, you're not suggesting that um, proprietors phone one another up or that many journalists get their copies spiked, as we say? It's uh, actually Orwell, <coughs> you may recall, has an essay called Literary Censorship in England, which was supposed to be the introduction to Animal Farm, except that it never appeared, in which he points out, look, I'm writing about a totalitarian society, but in free democratic England, it's not all that different. And then he says, uh, uh, unpopular ideas can be silenced without any force. And then he, he gives, two, he gives a two-sentence response, which is not very profound, but captures it. He says two reasons. First, the press is owned by wealthy men who have every interest in not having certain things appear. But second, the whole educational system from the beginning on through just ex gets you to understand that there are certain things you just don't say. Well, spelling these things out, that's perfectly correct. I mean, there, it's the first sentence is what we expand this on. Is, this is what I don't get, because it suggests that, I mean, I'm a joke, people like me are self-censoring. No, not self-censoring. Right. Uh, there's a filtering system that starts in kindergarten, goes all the way through. Uh, and it, it's not, it doesn't work 100%, but it's pretty effective. Uh, it selects for obedience and subordination. Uh, and especially, I think... So, so, so stroppy people won't make it to the be behavior problems or... If you read uh, applications to a graduate school, you see that people will tell you he's not... Uh, doesn't get along too well with his colleague. You, you know how to interpret those things. I, I, I'm just interested in this because <clears throat> I was brought up, like a lot of people, um, probably post-Watergate film and so on, to believe that journalism was a crusading uh, craft and that there were a lot of... Um, disputatious, stroppy, difficult people in journalism. And I have to say, I think I know some of them. Well, I know some of the best and best-known investigative reporters in the United States. I won't mention names, because I'm like, whose attitude toward the media is much more cynical than mine. In fact, <clears throat> they regard the media as a sham. And they know and they consciously talk about how they try to play it like a violin. If they see a little opening, they'll try to squeeze something in that ordinarily wouldn't make it through. Uh, and it's perfectly true that the majority, I'm, I'm sure you're speaking for the majority of journalists who are trained, have it driven into their heads, that this is a crusading uh, profession, adversarial, we stand up against power, a very self-serving view. Uh, on the other hand, in my opinion, I hate to make a value judgment, but the better journalists, and in fact the ones who are often regarded as the best journalists, have quite a different picture and I think a very realistic one. How, how, can, you, how can you know that I'm self-censoring? How can you I know don't say that self-censoring. I'm sure you believe everything you're saying. But what I'm saying is if you believe something different, you wouldn't be sitting where you're sitting. It is incredibly important to have a skeptical eye towards any media outlet, particularly when an outlet claims that it does everything it can to be impartial and balanced. Take a close look at the quality of their coverage and find out what perspectives are not being aired. You can try just searching for NPR Noam Chomsky or NPR Ralph Nader on a search engine. You will find that these two stalwart, well-respected experts who often challenge corporate and military power and who have long histories of public service are rarely given any airtime, let alone discussion of their ideas, on the liberal NPR. You will also find evidence that Chomsky had a review of one of his books preemptively taken off the air by a higher-up at NPR. And how ironic it is that NPR, which owes its very existence 
to the advocacy of Ralph Nader and others in getting Congress to pass the bill that founded NPR, will rarely bring Ralph Nader on the air to discuss the corporate control of government and many other consumer protection issues concerning the American public, which Nader is well-versed in. Now, moving from NPR's deference to the Democratic Party and how its kind of thought control works in who it rewards and who it doesn't, we can take a look at the apologetics that it gives to the overarching ideology of neoliberalism and how NPR rarely gives enough context, historical context, to much, if any, of the stories that it tells. NPR gets consistent criticisms from listeners about the lack of context they bring to news stories. And NPR's constant refrain in defense is that, quote, radio reporter pieces and live interviews are bound by strict time limits, which sometimes leaves audience members frustrated at the lack of context included. Time is tight. A two-minute story can cover the day's news, but does not allow for an explanation of the contributing factors of the last 50 years, unquote. That is just an okay argument if there was scant context furnished in a small minority of stories. But when a preponderance of radio stories only look narrowly at an issue and give no broader context, then what is presented on air is an unreality that fits quite well within the dominant neoliberal framework and serves powerful factions that would prefer for people to have blinders on. NPR's argument also fails to contend with the idea that maybe NPR news coverage should shift away from their self-imposed strict time limits, giving only shallow sound bites about every single issue in a news cycle, and instead towards more fully exploring a topic and giving airtime to substantive debate. As Ralph Nader pointed out, quote, very important subjects, conditions, and activities not part of NPR's frenzied news feed are relegated to far less frequent attention, unquote. So let us take a look at a few topics where NPR leaves out a lot of essential information. Starting first with student debt. On November 16th, 2021, NPR produced a story about student debt cancellation that would have you believe that all is rosy with the world and that the people in charge are benevolent and have our best interests at heart. The story, produced by Corey Turner, who has done some otherwise good reporting on improper student debt in the United States, this particular story focuses on the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. This program, administered by the Department of Education, was intended to erase the remaining student debt of borrowers who worked in public service for 10 years, as long as they made consistent, eligible payments during that time. But that program was broken, with strict criteria for what constituted eligible payments, poor management on the part of the Department of Education, and its loan servicing private contractors and very low approval rates for debt cancellation, leaving many people behind who thought their service in the public realm would pay off in the form of debt cancellation. People were even resorting to Reddit for all kinds of advice and support on how to navigate the system. This NPR story, in its brief entirety, is a textbook case of how the outlet leaves far too much on the table. The story is mainly composed of interviews with borrowers who recently had their student debt canceled. 
The interviews are intended to be heartwarming, quoting one borrower as saying that he spread his joy through the rafters at work after he had $20,000 in student debt erased. The story notes that thanks to the easing of restrictions in the program, approximately 30,000 borrowers will soon have the remaining student debt erased like the program was supposed to do, totaling around $2 billion, a mere fraction of the trillions of dollars of student debt, which is unmentioned by NPR. The story says that some borrowers are also getting refunds for payments they made past the point at which the loan should have been erased, with one borrower using the refund to, quote, help her young twins avoid college loans someday. The story elides the fact that that money, which was refunded, should never have been paid to the government in the first place. It also makes no mention that college loans could be avoided completely by simply publicly funding higher education to the point where tuition is either affordable or non-existent like it broadly used to be in the U.S. and how it currently is in many other nations. According to Pew... 63% of adults favor such a policy. In a cutesy flourish, the NPR story ends with one of the borrowers saying that she wishes the Department of Education would now fix her favorite annually losing football team, the Cleveland Browns. How inspiring. Another student debt story was written by NPR's same Cory Turner about a program that was intended to put low-income borrowers on track to getting their loans canceled so long as they made qualifying payments based on their income levels. The program, again, was found to be woefully mismanaged, a consistent theme, with various contracted loan servicers keeping very shoddy records and being unable to properly track loan payments. A report from the National Consumer Law Center found that, quote, 4.4 million borrowers had been repaying for at least 20 years, but only 32 had had loans canceled under the income-based repayment program. So let me just repeat that. Under this program, where low-income borrowers were supposed to get their loans erased so long as they made some form of payment based on their income, 4.4 million of them were making payments for 20 years. 4.4 million and over the course of that time, only 32, 32 individuals out of 4.4 million had their loans canceled. This NPR story about the Income Driven Repayment Program does a good job of highlighting how broken it is, but it does not explicitly connect the problems of the program with the simple fact that the government contracted out loan servicing obligations to private entities. This is a staple tactic of neoliberal regimes that consistently fetishize the supposed efficiencies of privatization. The story had no mention of the broader historical context of consistent federal defunding of higher education, and it gave short shrift to the concept of universal debt cancellation. The only mention of student debt cancellation came at the end of the story, with Turner relying on a he-said-she-said formula, giving the last word to, you, to a U.S. representative who is opposed to student debt cancellation. And tellingly, the on-air version of this story 
which was given only three minutes on NPR's Morning Edition, completely cuts out any mention of the demands for universal student debt cancellation. And it instead ends with a boilerplate quote from the Department of Education about how they will do better next time. NPR also produced a story on the recent extension of the student debt payment pause, where Elsa Chang interviewed Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona. Cardona, who speaks less like a Secretary of Education and more like a robot that has been programmed to use the filler, you know, at least once every other sentence in order to make him sound like a vague, stilted, unsure robot, was given little pushback by Chang regarding the exigencies of the student debt crisis. Now, to be fair, trying to pin down a script-reading, nebulous, prevaricating actor such as Secretary Cardona isn't easy to do live on air. But the best way is to keep it simple. Just ask him, why hasn't the Department of Education just canceled $10,000 of student debt for every borrower, nor canceled total tuition for every borrower making less than $125,000 a year who attended a public college or private HBCU, which is what President Biden promised he would do on the campaign trail? Now, of course, Cardona will try to worm his way out of that question by using his best PR speak, just as he did with all of the other questions that Chang threw at him. But at least he will have had the words of his own administration thrown back in his face on air. Instead of giving pushback, Chang wonders why more student debtors aren't making payments while interest is paused. She said, which you would think is exactly when borrowers would want to be paying off their loans, unquote. Such a ridiculous presumption like that, that debtors don't have better things to do with their money, like save as much as they can during a pandemic and a corporate-devised inflation crisis, is representative of an out-of-touch bias by NPR in favor of elite interests. Chang then asks, quote, do you worry that the mixed messages this administration is sending about possible debt cancellation further down the road is maybe causing people to not pay down their loans? Unquote. So let me give a try at fixing that broken question. Why would debtors pay off loans during a loan payment pause if the president wasn't lying when he said he would cancel student debt? Why would debtors pay off loans when debtor unions such as the Debt Collective, are doing the government's job by canceling loans themselves and advocating for universal higher education. These student debt stories by NPR all conveniently leave out a lot of crucial context that is unflattering to the powers that be, and which makes these minuscule debt cancellations and pauses hardly worth rejoicing over on the part of the general public. These stories, these stories all fall into the genre of stories that focus on a good thing happening, but then never question why that good thing had to happen in the first place. So let's fix that. Firstly, the stories leave out a lot of details that reflect poorly on the Biden administration. Details which put the lie to any claims that the administration is progressive. They fail to mention that these debt cancellations are being made over a year after Joe Biden promised immediate cancellation of $10,000 of student debt for every borrower, as well as total tuition debt cancellation for every student 
making less than $125,000 a year who attended public college or a private HBCU. He just, as a side note, also promised that COVID-19 tests would be free and that any medical bills related to COVID-19 hospitalization would be covered. That didn't happen. None of those promises have been made good on. These NPR stories also fail to mention that Biden has the authority to order the Department of Education to abolish all student debt, while Biden's former spokesperson, Jen Psaki, continuously claimed that the avenue for such an action lies with Congress, even though the administration knows full well that the current Congress would never pass such debt relief legislation. They just pass the ball somewhere else to where they know it will never happen. These stories fail to mention that not only has Biden not canceled any student debt as he promised he would, his administration also keeps telling borrowers to prepare themselves for when the loan payment pause expires, even in the face of a continuing pandemic and an inflation crisis that has been orchestrated primarily by monopolized corporations increasing prices well above any increases in their costs, which disproportionately impacts the poor and working class. These stories fail to mention that the Biden administration has also refused to restore an Obama-era protection, which was rescinded under the Trump administration, that demanded for-profit universities to ensure that their students achieve a certain debt-to-earnings ratio. And if the university failed to meet that threshold, then it would lose federal funding and its students would not be eligible to take out federal loans. That was rescinded under Trump, and Biden has not reinstated it. These stories also fail to mention that the $2 billion of debt that has been erased so far under these recent changes to the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program pales in comparison to the recently approved 2023 military budget of $858 billion, a sum that if divided up to all 13,800 public school districts in the U.S. would equal $62 million per district. Not to mention the approximately $54 billion, although it's difficult to produce an accurate number on this count, that has been approved by Congress to prolong the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine. There is also no mention that 42.9 million Americans owe a total of $1.57 trillion in student debt, while U.S. military spending since 9-11 has totaled over $14 trillion, with one-third to one-half of that total going to private mercenaries. Such a monstrous sum of money wasted on death and destruction that inordinately benefited the private interests of the military-industrial complex could have instead gone to fund higher education. These NPR stories fail to mention that the U.S. military preys upon student debtors as a way to keep their enlistment rates up by promising student aid and free tuition for those who serve. These stories fail to mention, they fail to explain the broader historical context of the student debt crisis, which is essential for understanding how we got here in the first place and why our government chooses to trot out a mismanaged public service loan forgiveness program instead of just adequately funding universal education in the first place so that students don't have to go into debt. So here is a quick recap of the student debt crisis that NPR never has time for in any of the stories that they produce. 
1966, Ronald Reagan was elected governor of California. He became popular by running against the radicalism of the student movements happening on University of California campuses, particularly UC Berkeley. Reagan understood that you could undercut a vibrant and politically engaged student movement, as well as healthy, independent academies, by slashing government funding for colleges and student aid. Schools would then become more reliant on charging tuition, students would become disempowered debtors, and university departments would turn into fiefdoms fighting over scarce resources. As governor, Reagan said that the state should, quote, not subsidize intellectual curiosity, unquote. He then went on to cut school budgets, and the California legislature exempted professors from state employee pay raises. And once Reagan became president in 1980, the effects of this callous ideology of austerity spread across the entire nation. Professor Devin Fergus notes that federal spending on higher education was cut by about 25% between 1980 and 1985. He writes, quote, in raw dollar figures, cuts totaled $594 million in student assistance and $338 million in Pell Grants. Effectively, these changes shifted the federal government's focus from providing students higher education grants to providing loans, unquote. These trends have continued unabated. Government funding for education has been steadily chipped away at every level, causing colleges to drain their students' pocketbooks and lock them into debt peonage for decades, if not for life. Defunding of education also radically emaciates the academy, depriving it of intellectual freedom and courage, shifting stable, tenured professorships to precarious adjuncts as a cost-cutting measure, turning professors into competitive grant writers, and morphing researchers into commercialized R&D arms of corporations. As the historian and professor Ellen Schrecker puts it, quote, such a constricted model of the academy, of such a constricted model of the academic community, not only would stunt the careers and futures of students and teachers, but also would undermine the very idea of the university as a place for intellectual growth and meaningful scholarship. Academic freedom is in danger here, as is the future of the well-informed citizenry that our democratic system requires. An academy transformed into a site for job training and corporate research will be increasingly hard-pressed to retain its function as the last remaining haven for reasoned dissent and the home of serious ideas that do not lend themselves to sound bites. Unquote. The current student debt crisis is a result of policy. It is a result of our political institutions being utterly beholden to immoral corporate interests at the expense of the American people. Student debtors, believing in the neoliberal pronouncements from figures such as the Clintons and Obama about the need to maintain a competitive edge in a globalized world, they got an education in an attempt to improve their lives, and now they find themselves unable to start a family, purchase a home, save for retirement, or do anything but work paycheck to paycheck just to stay afloat in a post-NAFTA economy with stagnant wages, disempowered workers, and bailouts for the rich. 
The debt crisis is a result of an elite class that refuses to recognize education as a public good in and of itself, and not as a mere market commodity to be valued by how much a student's wages or salary will be. The current student debt crisis is a result of austere policies carried out over decades by both Democrats and Republicans. All the while, as Wall Street, fat cat CEOs, and billionaires rob the public purse and engage in their own organized tax strike, we are told by the political and media class that student debt abolition is not only politically infeasible, but morally wrong. As such, their claims to legitimacy are becoming thinner and thinner and would be laughable if the effects weren't so deadly serious. This is the essential context and analysis that NPR fails to provide in regards to student debt. NPR leaves the listener feeling like all our problems are being taken care of, that these issues are mere isolated blips on our path of progress, nothing to see here, but these student debt stories are just one demonstrative example of how NPR functions as a state media outlet that consistently serves as a stenographer for power and capital. This is perhaps seen in a much more stark and troubling way in NPR's coverage of the United States' foreign policy. So turning to that subject, it is startling to see how NPR stories give deference to the U.S. State Department and whitewash the crimes of U.S. aggression, while at the same time emphasizing the crimes of our official enemies. Let's first examine the case of Israel. In late November of 2020, Israel carried out an assassination against a prominent Iranian nuclear scientist named Mohsen Fakhirzadeh. While driving in a car with his wife, Israeli agents, using a remote-operated machine gun mounted on a parked car, opened fire on Fakirzadeh's vehicle, killing him. This was yet another in a long line of assassinations of Iranian scientists by Israel. NPR did some decent reporting at the time regarding how this Israeli assassination of Fakirzadeh could affect the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, also known as the Iran nuclear deal. That deal, negotiated under the Obama administration, was easing economic sanctions on Iran in return for outside inspections of Iran's nuclear program. President Trump pulled the U.S. out of the deal and reinstituted sanctions against Iran. In turn, Iran slowly restarted its collection and refinement of uranium. Now, notably, NPR's story from December 3rd made no mention of Israel being responsible for this assassination. It didn't even quote the statement from Iran, which cast blame on the Israeli state. The story gives some voice to the notion that Iran does have a certain logic in wanting to develop nuclear capability, despite costly Western sanctions. Quoting Arian Tabatabai, an Iran expert from a U.S.-funded think tank, who, just by the way, she seemed quite bent out of shape by the passing of the ghoulish Madeleine Albright and the mendacious Colin Powell, Tabatabai said, quote, 
There are individuals within Iran who say, listen, the economic cost of U.S. sanctions is worth it, because otherwise Iran will continue to be a target, unquote. Indeed, perhaps some nuclear capability would put a stop to all these assassinations being carried out by Israel. It would seem that Israel has an assassination addiction that is serious enough to merit intervention and treatment to stop it from continuing to hurt itself and others. If only there were an Assassin's Anonymous meetings it could attend. Years earlier in 2012, prior to the existence of the Iran nuclear agreement, Israel assassinated a high-level Iranian nuclear scientist, his death being the fifth of its kind in just the previous five years. In PR, reported on this killing, without ever going so far as to describe the assassination as an act of terror. That, of course, would be too inflammatory. But NPR's Peter Kenyon did go so far as to describe the assassination as a belligerent act. Now, I would hazard to guess that if Iran carried out a single assassination against an Israeli scientist, let alone five NPR might give credence to those who go beyond labeling, it, labeling that a mere belligerent act, and instead call Iran a terrorist state. Such a label, being applied to Israel, is considered beyond the pale in polite circles. These NPR stories explain little of the broader context of U.S. and Israeli foreign policy. NPR fails to mention that the U.S. is hell-bent on ensuring that Israel maintains its sole moral right to exercise nuclear force in the region, and every other nation's attempt at nuclear capability in the region are illegitimate, a priori. Let's look at how this dynamic is examined in a different NPR story. In a conversation from 2018 that focused specifically on the Iranian nuclear deal, NPR's Steve Inskeep who has a long history of bias in favor of the U.S. client and apartheid state of Israel. He interviewed Israel's ambassador to the U.S., Ron Dermer. The ambassador gave cover to then-Prime Minister Netanyahu's claim that Iran hid the fact that it had a nuclear weapons program, which ended over a decade before the negotiation of the nuclear deal. Ambassador Dermer argued that the nuclear deal with Iran was ineffectual, and that the U.S. would therefore be right to pull out of the agreement. The U.S. eventually did pull out of the agreement after Trump was pressured by neoconservatives such as Dermer and John Bolton, who Bolton has long advocated for regime change in Iran. The behavior and the objectives of the regime are not going to change, and therefore the only solution is to change the regime itself. This reneging by the U.S., is a key reason why current attempts to renegotiate the nuclear deal are being met with mistrust by Iran, understandably so. The bounds of this conversation between NPR's Inskeep and Ambassador Dermer are quite revealing. Insofar as Inskeep gives any pushback to the ambassador, it is only in regards to narrow trifles about the efficacy of inspections that the nuclear deal required. Dermer says that if, quote, the commitment of Iran not to violate the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty gave us any comfort, we wouldn't have needed a deal to begin with because they've been signatories of the NPT from the beginning, unquote. Inskeep does not bring up the fact that Israel 
isn't even a signatory to the NPT, nor that Israel itself has stockpiles of nuclear weapons. The entire conversation is based on the preconception that Israel has a right to possess nuclear weapons, while every other country in the region does not. And just as another side note, people will often say that Iran is a supreme evil that cannot have any nuclear weapons because it is an Islamist state, a radical Islamist state that will assuredly use its nuclear weapons because it has no qualms about killing millions, if not billions of people in a nuclear exchange. What's not mentioned is that Israel is itself also explicitly a religious state. It is a Zionist state. And it is the one that has nuclear weapons. And it is the one which consistently murders Palestinians, men, women, and children every day. It cages them in Gaza, the largest open-air prison in the world. It surveils them. It regulates whether or not they can have relationships within, within Israel. It is a totalitarian state for Palestinians. And no hypocrisy is seen when those who are in Israel or who are defending Israel by saying that, well, of course, Iran can't have nuclear weapons. They're crazy. They're a religious state. Of course, they'll use them. What about Israel? What's the difference? There is no questioning by Inskeep of why Israel is allowed to be the only nuclear-armed state in the region. There is no questioning of what the alternative to the nuclear deal would be. Neocons, such as Dermer and Netanyahu in Israel and John Bolton in the U.S., have long supported maximum pressure and sanctions on Iran, not as an effective way to deter nuclear proliferation, but as a way of instigating violent regime change in Iran, a tactic which is now being used against Russia with the war in Ukraine. Israel was never in support of a negotiated nuclear deal with Iran. Israel has always wanted to maintain a hostile stance against the country. Indeed, Israeli assassinations of Iranian scientists stopped for only as long as the nuclear deal was in place. Once the nuclear deal was left in tatters, exactly as Israel was advocating for, they resumed their terror campaign against Iran. There is no mention in any of these NPR stories that Israel is a regularly belligerent nation that bombed Egypt, bombed Tunisia, bombed Syria, invaded, occupied, and subjected Lebanon to state terror throughout the 1980s and 90s. It regularly assassinates Iranian civilians, and it is carrying out the long-standing occupation and genocide of Palestine. There is no mention that the U.S. and Israel are responsible for a preponderance of the aggression in the region, instigating multiple coups, arming jihadist groups, causing a million deaths with the disastrous U.S. invasion of, U of Iraq, not to mention the resulting destabilization of the entire region and the rise of ISIS. There is little to no thought by NPR given to the notion that perhaps Iran 
a country which suffered a CIA-backed coup of its democratically elected leader, Mohammed Mossadegh, wants to be able to deter the threat of Israeli violence and Western meddling. There is no mention of the fact that Israel opposed any kind of nuclear deal with Iran from the get-go, and therefore any Israeli undermining of the deal is likely done in bad faith. But of course, for a reporter such as Inskeep to bring all this up during a conversation with an Israeli diplomat would be uncouth and quite unlike NPR's established tone of respectfulness. Respect for what? A media outlet that can actually give some clarity to this situation and allow for perspectives that are considered off-limits by NPR is Democracy Now!, which interviewed Noam Chomsky in regards to this issue. Chomsky had this to say. There, according to U.S. intelligence, their strategic doctrine is to try to prevent an attack up to the point where diplomacy can set in. I don't think anyone with a gray cell functioning thinks that they would ever conceivably use a nuclear weapon or even try to. Uh, the country would be obliterated in 15 seconds. Uh, but they might provide a deterrent of sorts. And the U.S. and Israel certainly don't want to tolerate that. They are the forces that carry out regular violence and aggression in the region and don't want any impediment to that. The radical idea of a completely nuclear-free Middle East, which necessarily means the dismantling of Israel's nuclear weapons program, is not countenanced in places such as NPR. It is not countenanced because such a prospect goes against America's divine right to rule over the Middle East with Israel as its obsequious nuclear-armed cudgel in the region. The prospect of a nuclear-free region, which is supported by Iran, would mean that the U.S. would have to acknowledge the fact of Israel's nuclear weapons program, which it currently does not. It does not acknowledge it because to do so would mean to admit that the billions of dollars in aid that is given to Israel every year by the U.S. is illegal under U.S. law. A law passed by Congress in 1976 bars any aid to be given to nuclear-armed countries which have not signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Israel has not signed the NPT, and therefore the U.S. is committing one of its many litany of crimes every year by giving aid to Israel. None of this is spoken about on NPR. Instead, we are given an interview with an Israeli ambassador who says that the nuclear deal with Iran should be demolished and that Iran needs to dismantle its nuclear program, while NPR's Steve Inskeep operates under the imperialist assumption that Israel, a totally peaceful U.S. ally and definitely not nuclear-armed power, has only benevolent reasons for everything it does. Now, not every NPR story needs to provide every scrap of context for a particular issue. But when most of their stories provide little to no essential context, it is not a defensible mistake. It is an ideology made manifest. As Todd Gitlin puts it in his book, The Whole World is Watching, when news outlets treat stories as single, discrete issues, providing little connective tissue to other stories, 
Those outlets thus promote, quote, the dominant system's claim to general legitimacy, unquote. If every story stands alone and is divorced from history, listeners are left with the feeling that every event is a one-off, a peculiarity, something to be understood and then forgotten, not something in a long line of events caused by the overarching structures of our society. The woefully transparent media bias in favor of the U.S. government, particularly on foreign policy issues, where reporters will emphasize the crimes of official U.S. enemies, but will de-emphasize or ignore the crimes committed by the U.S. and its client states, the reasons for which that happens are deftly described by Edward S. Herman and Noam Chomsky in their classic work, Manufacturing Consent. This has presented itself in NPR's coverage of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and Russia's involvement in the war in Syria. Here are just a few examples. In a recent NPR article on the U.S. and Russian proxy war in Syria and how it relates to the current war in Ukraine, the author, Jason Breslow, spends much of his article focusing on various war crimes committed by Russia in its attempt to help stop the U.S.-backed overthrow of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Breslow cites a U.N. investigation that looked at an attack where, quote, more than 43 civilians were killed when Russian aircraft launched a series of airstrikes on a market. Civilians and other rescuers soon rushed to the scene, but within minutes they were met by a double-tap airstrike on the same area, killing scores more, unquote. NPR's Breslow doesn't have the time to mention that the U.S. murdered 80 people in Syria in a double-tap airstrike. He doesn't mention that Amnesty International found that 1,600 civilians were killed in Raqqa, Syria by U.S. coalition air and artillery strikes in what was described as a death trap. Breslow makes no mention of the fact that the U.S. has been conducting a dirty war in Syria against Russia and Iranian coalition forces by funding anti-government jihadists and funneling weapons to those extremist groups in order to overthrow the Assad regime. Breslow particularly highlights the use of cluster bombs by Russia in Syria. He writes, quote, Cluster munitions are considered so indiscriminate in the harm they cause for civilians that in 2008, more than 100 nations signed a global treaty banning their use. Neither Ukraine nor Russia signed on, unquote. Breslow fails to mention that not only did the United States also not sign that treaty, but we have even used cluster bombs in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we sell cluster bombs to Israel and Saudi Arabia. Civilians are being killed years later by unexploded ordnance from these cluster bombs that were dropped by the U.S. and its allies. This apparently warrants no mention by NPR. National Pentagon Radio, when producing a story in the lead-up to the U.S. providing billions of dollars of untraceable weapons to Ukraine, which are now flooding the black market. I see your Russian use of cluster bombs in Syria, Breslow, and I raise you one U.S. bombing of critical infrastructure in Syria, a dam that, if ruptured, could have caused 
tens of thousands of deaths. The U.S. was fully aware of this possibility beforehand, and yet we bombed the dam anyway. This rank hypocrisy of the U.S., laundered by the likes of NPR, is par for the course. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, recently addressed the U.N., saying, quote, We've seen videos of Russian forces moving exceptionally lethal weaponry to into Ukraine, which has no place on the battlefield. That includes cluster munitions and vacuum bombs, which are banned under the Geneva Convention, unquote. Later, the official transcript of her remarks was edited to add the words, quote, if they are directed against civilians. This Orwellian editing of the past, he who controls the past controls the future, he who controls the present controls the past, serves to cover up U.S. hypocrisy, thus perpetuating the innocence with which we view ourselves and the endless evil that results from such manufactured innocence. As Democracy Now! pointed out, quote, The United States fought against the creation of the Convention on Cluster Munitions and is not among the 110 nations that have ratified the treaty. The U.S. has repeatedly used cluster bombs throughout its history, dropping them over Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Iraq, and elsewhere. Under President Barack Obama in 2009, a U.S. cluster bomb attack in Yemen killed 55 people, the majority of them women and children. Russia and Ukraine also have not signed on to the Convention on Cluster Munitions. Simplified state-supporting propaganda disseminated by mainstream media such as NPR fans the flames of war. It makes us feel like the unerring defenders of virtue who must stop at nothing to defend our allies from our demonic enemies. But as the journalist Chris Hedges writes, war itself is demonic. It destroys everything that sustains life. In order for people to unquestionably support such barbarity, they must be propagandized into it. Hedges writes, quote, We, echoing the empty promises from Moscow, claim we do not target civilians. Rulers always paint their militaries as humane. They're to serve and protect. Collateral damage happens, but it is regrettable. This lie can only be sustained among those who are unfamiliar with the explosive ordnance and large kill zones of missiles, iron fragmentation bombs, mortar, artillery, and tank shells, and belt-fed machine guns, unquote. This magical thinking, us versus them, the good guys trying to beat the bad guys, is made all the more worrisome with this conflict now in Ukraine that involves two nuclear superpowers owning the largest stockpiles of nuclear weapons, which are more than enough to wipe out most living species on Earth. NPR gives no voice to a moral critique of war, only strategic critiques of war. In an interview between NPR's Sasha Pfeiffer and former NATO commander and retired U.S. Air Force General Philip Breedlove, the two go back and forth on whether or not the implementation of a no-fly zone over Ukraine is a good idea. It's not. No one stops to consider the criticism that U.S. actions may be needlessly prolonging the conflict. Breedlove defended the use of what he called a humanitarian no-fly zone. Pfeiffer asked him, understandably, how is a humanitarian no-fly zone different than a traditional no-fly zone? 
And Breedlove responded, maybe the humanitarian no-fly zone would only be over the western part of Ukraine, such that we could get relief trains in and wounded and dying out to try to bring medical care to them. Now, why Russia would accept such an arrangement at face value and not suspect that this western no-fly zone would be used to funnel lethal arms, including anti-tank and anti-aircraft weapons, into Ukraine is not discussed. Then comes this exchange, which could have been lifted directly from Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove. Would you still support the idea of a no-fly zone over Ukraine if you knew it would provoke Russia to use nuclear weapons? No. Nobody wants a nuclear war. So then it's a gamble to put a no-fly zone into effect. Yeah, it's your word. That's not the word I would use. What word would you use? It's a calculated military decision. Listening to that dangerous Orwellian nonsense over the radio nearly had me wreck my car. One can only hope that we live long enough to see this dialogue turned into a comedic sketch. As of now, it is simply terrifying. And then came another more telling exchange. Breedlove, encouraging the conversation of a no-fly zone over Ukraine, asked, how many Ukrainians have to die? How many Ukrainians have to die before we talk about a no-fly zone? To which NPR's Sasha Pfeiffer responded, right, it's a terrible question no one wants to answer. What a journalist who is committed to standing up against entrenched power ought to say to a former NATO commander after he made that rhetorical move is this. Yes, how many more Ukrainians have to die because the U.S. is funneling lethal arms to the populace in order to bleed Russia out as much as possible and foment dangerous regime change of a nuclear-armed power, as has been made explicit on multiple occasions by the worst actors of our political class? How many more Ukrainians need to die before the U.S. stops escalating the conflict and instead encourages diplomatic talks between Russia and Ukraine? How many more Ukrainians need to die before the U.S. recognizes that it made a horrible mistake in choosing to expand NATO after the fall of the Soviet Union and thereby needlessly alienate Russia from the West? I said needlessly alienate Russia, but of course this alienation has a purpose. It ensures a permanent enemy in the form of Russia, and therefore a permanent war economy, a permanent wartime state of mind, something to line the pockets of the multinational weapons manufacturers in the name of security and freedom. In a similar interview on NPR, in the lead-up to the U.S. invasion of Iraq, NPR's Melissa Block asked neocon Assistant Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz this question. You're considered among the most hawkish advisors to the president. I don't know if that's a label you wear with pride or not. Um, Others tilted toward a more diplomatic route through the United Nations. Now that the UN negotiations have become so prolonged, do you feel that it was a mistake to take that route to go through the UN and has it complicated your military strategy? Meaning that the majority of the world was not willing to go along with the patently criminal U.S. invasion. NPR only asks questions of strategy. NPR does not question the morality of war itself. This leads to further acceptance of militarization and escalation, not diplomacy and peace. There is no room for diplomacy, let alone pacifism, when it comes to the official enemies of the U.S. State Department. There are only military options, demands from the barrel of a gun to assert our values of freedom and democracy. 
This is the kind of news coverage you get when you bring on experts to talk and you give them no pushback. This is how NPR can produce a story on the difficulty of prosecuting Russian crimes of aggression in Ukraine without giving any mention to how the U.S. consistently undermines any accountability for its own criminal wars of aggression in Iraq and elsewhere by refusing to recognize the legitimacy of the International Criminal Court. This is how NPR can have a story that quotes Merrick Garland as saying, quote, there is no hiding place for war criminals, unquote, without first deriding such a laughable comment and then mentioning the fact that thousands of American war criminals from our many wars are living completely free and will likely never face an international war crimes tribunal such as we are currently attempting against Russia. This is Western hypocrisy, plain and simple, legitimized by the likes of NPR. When NPR consistently fails to provide substantive pushback on these issues, it reveals how impoverished our media class is of any backbone or moral center. War does not spread virtue. It spreads death and empowers the most violent actors in a society, all the while enriching weapons manufacturers and impoverishing the great mass of people. A news outlet such as NPR that wants to avoid sounding anti-war in order to be perceived as balanced and unbiased is not actually being impartial. It is being amoral and dangerous, all in service of anti-democratic monsters. This is the same NPR that practically ran an industry advertisement for surveillance drones disguised as a story. This story, with the cutesy title, Look, up in the sky, it's a drone looking at you, has this to say about the wonders of drone technology. Quote, Drones, or unmanned vehicles, have been a success with the military, and companies such as Aerovironment hope to make them an increasingly common sight in this country. Vice President of Aerovironment Steve Gitlin says, The Cube costs just a bit more than a police patrol car, making it a much less expensive alternative to a manned helicopter, unquote. By success with the military, NPR means that most people killed by U.S. drones are innocent civilians and not the intended targets. But the U.S. military defaults to labeling its victims military-aged males and combatants until they're posthumously proven innocent which the military barely, if ever, bothers to do. Why would it? Thankfully, organizations such as Air Wars do actually conduct on-the-ground investigations of drone strikes in order to give a fuller accounting of U.S. barbarity. Success with the military means that we have robots of death controlled by lowly operators who were recruited for their gaming acumen, striking at villages with hellfire missiles, turning children into amputees and orphans in impoverished countries that we have not officially declared war against. All of this is done in secret, with no public control, let alone debate over such military actions. This is what the United States does every day. NPR calls it a success. After the NPR drone story spends much of its time talking to drone evangelists, it fulfills its mission of balance by letting a privacy advocate say a few words about how drones can be used to spy on citizens. 
Journalist Glenn Greenwald wrote this in response at the time, quote, So NPR listeners heard for four and a half minutes about the wonderful, exciting uses of drones from an executive of a drone corporation, an official with the drone industry, and a sheriff's spokesman using drones, and then for about 10 seconds at the end from someone who is a little wary. If the drone industry had purchased commercial time on NPR, how would this report have been any different? Unquote. The difference would have been that listeners would have heard the same underwriting text read aloud in dulcet tones every single day, 20 times a day, ad nauseum. Now, I should acknowledge that all of these critiques so far are primarily targeted at NPR itself and not at the many local public radio affiliates that are able to produce their own programming through local funding. My own local station, KCBX, recently produced a good series of stories examining local farm worker labor. And KCBX also broadcasts more anti-establishment media voices, such as FAIR's Counterspin, Democracy Now!, and Le Show. But liberals who get most of their news primarily from NPR are getting a very particular view of the world that is dismissive or antagonistic of anything that goes against mainstream orthodoxy. Most state-funded media, such as NPR, PBS, or the BBC, tempers its coverage in order to appease those who fund them and in order to not overly offend state interests. They make appeals to objectivity when all that means is adherence to mainstream safe opinion and echoing of official statements. The claim of objectivity is merely thinly-veiled obedience to powerful state and corporate interests, which at this point in the U.S. are one and the same. This is why you can have government-funded media outlets, such as NPR, cry foul over state-run propaganda outlets, such as Russian television, even though RT can produce a segment like this. This interview with Zainab Soleimani, the daughter of slain Iranian general Qasem Soleimani, who was illegally assassinated under orders from President Trump, is a shotgun blast of perspectives that are never seen or heard on U.S. media, including NPR. For starters, the mere fact of a victim of U.S. wars in the Middle East being given 20 minutes to speak live, on air, from a state that is considered an adversary of the U.S., is enough to make you realize that such an interview would be exceedingly rare if not non-existent in Western media. And Soleimani punches huge holes in American myths, starting with the fact that the U.S. has played a key role in empowering al-Qaeda and ISIS in both Syria and Iraq, and that the journalist Julian Assange, who helped expose this fact, has wasted away for years in prison because of his courage in exposing Western lies and war crimes. Soleimani says, uh, Julian Assange, uh, the founder of Wikileaks, he exposed the email uh, that uh, Jack Sullivan was telling Hillary Clinton uh, that Al-Qaeda is in our side in Syria. Okay, that's seen, that shows, and this man is still in the prison. Why? Because he exposed them. And he said for everyone that such a group terrorist that are killing people, innocent people in the Middle East... America made them, and they are like toys for them. The, the life of people, innocent people, are like toys for them. 
They attacked everyone everywhere. Now this is the email she is referring to. AQ is on our side in Syria, meaning that the CIA flooded weapons into Iraq and Syria, knowing full well that they were arming anti-government jihadists tied to al-Qaeda, who ended up carrying out mass slaughter of civilians in order to overthrow Bashar al-Assad. Soleimani goes on to elucidate the fact, which both ruling parties in the U.S. like to deny, that it does not matter who resides in the White House. U.S. foreign policy is always bad for people and countries who try to stand up against Western hegemony. Do you think it means anything that Joe Biden will be in the White House? I have to say that there is no difference between Biden and Trump. They are the same guy. And they are following the same policy. There is no difference between them. Trump ordered killing my father. But Biden support that. So there is no difference. They have the same thought. And they are following the same way. And they are the same person. I mean, yeah, Biden was agree with Obama when they made ISIS. What's the difference between Trump and Biden? What will change? They are the same people with the same mind. There is no difference for us. I mean, they can. Joe Biden cannot return my father. He can. He can't return it. So there is the, the problem we have with America is with their policy. This will not change. They are the same people, the same mind, the same way. And each one of them is worse than the other one. This interview expresses a view that would never be countenanced or framed as legitimate on mainstream U.S. media, such as NPR. It gives voice to America's victims. It humanizes the Iranian people, and it calls into question the blissful and arrogant innocence with which Americans view themselves and their government, an innocence which ensures the continuous immiseration of other people by our hands. And yet, it is only RT that gets branded as state propaganda, while the likes of NPR, PBS, and the BBC get to prance around as neutral arbiters of truth and journalistic integrity, even though they conveniently stay within the narrow bounds of acceptable Western thought. You watch PBS News, and I don't suggest you do, you'll have the intrepid Jane Ferguson um, on their reporting from the front line saying things like, over here is democracy. She's referring to Ukrainian land, and over there is uh, you know, basically authoritarianism. Well, that's interesting. Brad, you have the video that Vijay had mentioned. This is PBS. Yeah. This village is the last one of the front line controlled by Ukrainians. The next one contested. The one after that, Russian controlled. You can see in the distance here the smoke from artillery fire there. So this is Ukrainian territory and that is Russian territory. But it's important to remember this war is about a lot more than that. This is where democracy ends. And over there is where autocracy starts. We are not fighting just... Uh, That's it. Like, wow. uh, we don't need any more, okay? Wow. That's a Political U.S. Theorist. journalist. <laughs> wow. I would love to hear her describe, define either of those things, honestly. 
I, I, you know, it's it's actually shameful because that's on PBS, which uh, puts itself forward as like the firstly a liberal channel, uh, as it were, and secondly, um, the channel of thoughtful people, as it were. It doesn't have people yelling and so on, but it's comical. I mean, what is she talking about? You know, how is a correspondent to behave like that? You know. Uh, I, I'm interested in in in. I would exactly as you say. I would like to have a, you know, define the terms. Um, you know, it doesn't illuminate anything. You know, journalism, journalism is supposed to give stories to people so that we get an illumination about the world. We can have some understanding of what's happening. You know, I, I don't presume. I, I've reported from difficult places. I agree. It's hard to report. In a war, it's really hard because you you don't know what's going on. You know, it's bewildering. Um, I get it, but um, our purpose isn't to tell quote unquote the truth, but to illuminate something. You know, to try our best to be clear and sincere and illuminate. This is just propaganda. Now, as a side note, the original segment on RT that I wanted to use to demonstrate this point was a piece that was produced by RT America that had an interview with former Marine Corps intelligence officer and UN weapons inspector Scott Ritter and a former Pentagon official, who I cannot find the name of now because the segment was completely scrubbed from YouTube after the Google-owned platform deleted every single video by RT America from its website. And I cannot find the original segment on RT's own website. Scott Ritter's Twitter account has since been suspended because he did not tow the official Western line on the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine. The disappeared segment analyzed Iran's calls to hold U.S. officials to account for ordering the illegal assassination of General Soleimani by putting those officials on trial at the International Criminal Court. Again, this segment, produced by RT America, gave airtime to views that are either ignored or derided by the Western press. Namely, that Iran, by seeking justice against the U.S. for the murder of its well-regarded general, is advocating for the rule of law, something that the U.S. abandoned long ago, and is accurately calling the assassination an act of state terror. So, thank you, Silicon Valley companies, for censoring any dissenting views from official U.S. dogma, and thank you, Western media, for playing along as if this is normal, proper, and good. The dystopia is here, indeed. All hail, Big Brother. Now, moving to the final category of issues that I want to assess with NPR, and that is the professionalization and elitism of mainstream journalism, which has infected NPR and most other outlets. NPR and the media in general trended towards professionalization and accreditation of journalists. And this has homogenized the journalism industry and turned it into a walled-off elite class that expresses the values of its particular class interests. Just as NPR has become politically partisan like other media outlets, it has also succumbed to the same staffing biases that are seen within the larger media, eco media ecosystem. So call them what you will, the professional managerial class, the creative class, the liberal class, 
they all vote respectably, they use the good and proper terminology, and they gain advanced degrees in order to write stories that pose no threat to our current systems. Think of the upper-class journalist with a master's degree from the, com from the Columbia School of Journalism. Now, in older days, the idea of a master's degree in journalism would have been regarded as a joke, something that the fast-talking, low-down reporter characters from His Girl Friday would have scorned as highfalutin and a fet. Today, it is becoming ubiquitous. Now, where I come from, the world of technical theater, a master's degree in theater is joked about as something people get if they've got nothing better to do than throw away tens of thousands of dollars on an education that they could get just by working at a theater company, but I digress. This official accreditation of journalism, turning it into something that it didn't used to be, an official class that you belong to instead of something that you do, saps any radicalism from the profession and creates an insular, not to say incestual, culture. Institutional reporters are increasingly culled from the upper classes and the milieu of elite colleges. Thus, the same principles of neoliberalism stringently inculcated at the academy remain ascendant in newsrooms. The poor, working class, and high school graduates are marginalized. The range of acceptable thought narrows. The polite, upper-crust tone of NPR, representing in fact a narrow worldview, conveniently tends to serve institutionalized power. Now, in Hate, Inc., Matt Taibbi's book, he explains this trend towards journalist positions becoming occupied by college graduates, and it's worth quoting at length. He writes, quote, In the late 2000s, the British Cabinet Office issued a report called Unleashing Aspirations. It found journalism to be one of the most socially exclusive professions in the country, noting 98% of journalists born since 1970 were college-educated, less than 10% came from working-class backgrounds, and a journalist, on average, grew up in a family in the upper 25th percentile by wealth. In America, the change came in stages. When journalism became cool after all the president's men, upper-class kids suddenly wanted in. Previously, a rich American kid wouldn't have wiped his tuchus with a reporter. Ironically, all the president's men, which made reporting glamorous, was about adversarial journalism. But the next generation of national political reporters viewed people in power as cultural soulmates, because, at least socially, they were. Political reporters became professional apologists, constantly telling us how hard it is for politicians to win elections and run things. The internet accelerated the class divide. Big regional newspapers increasingly became national or even global in mindset. In the digital age, it made more sense to design coverage for a sliver of upper-class readers across the country who could afford subscriptions and responded to ads. Because news organizations were targeting those audiences, it made sense to pick reporters who came from those ranks as well. By the mid-2000s, journalists at the top national papers almost all belonged to the same general cultural profile. Liberal arts grads from top schools who lived in a few big cities on the East and West Coasts. Unquote. Now, Taibbi is mainly describing for-profit outlets, such as the New York Times and the Washington Post, But NPR is subject to this same trend as well. 
Now take a look at this table, which shows prominent NPR reporters and their alma mater. If you're a listener of NPR, you probably recognize many of these names. A good number of them have gone to Ivy League colleges. A good number of them have advanced degrees, either um, just a master's or a master's in journalism. This is where they come from. And not coincidentally, the makeup of NPR listeners is also solidly of college graduates. As Jack Mitchell said about NPR's audience... Uh, the answer are people who are uh, highly educated. That's the key. Uh, the more education you have, the more likely you are to listen. If you did not graduate from high school, you do not listen, period. And uh, if you have a master's or a PhD, you're almost certainly listen. So that's, that's the determination. Now, Michael McCauley ascribes the tone of NPR directly to the educational backgrounds of its reporters. He wrote, quote, The rational, fair, and balanced inquiry that is heard on NPR News is a function of the educational attainment of the network's journalists and listeners and the value systems these people have developed through higher education, unquote. Some values, indeed. The elite tone of NPR, coming as it does from a professionalized staff, quote, turns off a lot of people, Mitchell said. The tone turns off a lot of people. Uh, they use language that people don't necessarily understand or aren't, aren't comfortable with. It's not, not language they would use, you know, the Linda Wertheimer approach, you know, they, and they don't even know they're doing it. You know, it's just the way they talk. You know? mm -hmm. They think it's conversational, and it is for them, and but the social divide is, is, is quite different. NPR is routinely criticized from both the left and the right for a perception that the organization is homogenous. As NPR itself admitted in 2005, quote, At NPR, there are discussions about whether the people who are attracted to work in public radio are too much alike. There is an increasing recognition that NPR needs to be a more diverse organization at every level, culturally as well as politically, and that's a discussion that is long overdue, unquote. The elitism of the media corresponds with the worsening political divide throughout the nation. Jack Mitchell went on saying, uh, They really don't have much respect for anybody who voted for Donald Trump. Well, half the country did. <laughs> and I think that's a huge, you know, that's a pretty big blind spot if you're in a, trying to run a democracy, work in a democracy and want a functioning society. Uh, you really do have to uh, not only understand, but it wouldn't respect. I guess that's what it would be because the NPR will go out and interview some people, and but it's like sending a, some correspondent to a foreign country. You know, they're oh, what an interesting people you are. Uh, that that kind of an attitude. A kind of vicious cycle occurs where the tastes of professional liberal reporters are reflected by the professional liberal audience, and vice versa, creating an establishment echo chamber. Describing the tastes of the public radio audience, Macaulay wrote, quote, 
NPR listeners are more likely than average to partake in just about any kind of leisure activity, including exercise, sports, dining out, and attending live musical and theatrical performances. Nearly 70% purchased books over the year that culminated in NPR's 2003 audience survey, unquote. Wow! Books! They buy books! 70% of NPR listeners purchased at least one copy of The Da Vinci Code and The Secret. That's how you know they're real smart. A reporter's class and educational background are not necessarily determinative of the kind of reporter they will be. But, as a general trend, people look out for their material class interests. And as journalism becomes more homogenized and professionalized, it perpetuates the dominant ideologies that are so embedded in our academies and political institutions. As Todd Gitlin put it in The Whole World is Watching, quote, Journalists are socialized from childhood and then trained, recruited, assigned, edited, rewarded, and promoted on the job. They decisively shape the ways in which news is defined, events are considered newsworthy, and objectivity is secured. News is managed automatically, as reporters import definitions of newsworthiness from editors and institutional beats. Simply by doing their jobs, journalists tend to serve the political and economic elite definitions of reality, unquote. What does this kind of accreditation mean for journalism? For starters, it fosters a culture of impunity. In his book, Listen Liberal, Thomas Frank describes the history of our broader culture of professionalization and how it has infected our politics. Explaining the unaccountable insularity that arises from professionalization, Frank writes, quote, The group to which professionals ultimately answer is not the public, but their peers. They listen mainly to one another. They are not required to heed voices from below their circle of expertise, unquote. We see this same dynamic today in journalism as outlets defend themselves from the critiques of outsiders, blowing off substantive disputes as the ramblings of partisans. Indeed, NPR continuously absolves itself of the issues that listeners bring up, whether it's on their coverage of the lead-up to the Iraq War, where, in defending itself, NPR praised the interview that Melissa Block did with the neocon Assistant Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz, calling it a model of sharpness, or whether it's NPR's refusal to use the word torture, their, un- their questionable coverage of their underwriters, their delegitimizing of progressive politics, their liberal and status quo bias, or their nationalistic worldview, NPR always finds a reason to avoid full accountability or to conduct a broader systemic analysis of their coverage. As Frank writes, quote, Professions certify the expertise of insiders while negating and dismissing the knowledge claims of outsiders, unquote. This professionalization has broad political implications. As Frank explains, quote, As a political ideology, professionalism carries enormous potential for mischief. For starters, it is obviously and inherently undemocratic, prioritizing the views of experts over those of the public. But what happens when an entire category of experts stops thinking of itself 
as social trustees? What happens when they abuse their monopoly power? What happens when they start looking mainly after their own interests, which is to say, start acting as a class, unquote. National Public Radio is anything but public in the most democratic sense of that word. Since its inception, the trend towards professionalization of NPR, with it leaving behind the real people, as Mitchell put it, and shifting towards the experts, mirrors a similar trajectory of the Democratic Party. Over the years, the Democratic Party has transfigured itself from the party of the people to the party of the professional class, a class which includes journalists. As Democrats, under Bill Clinton, sold out the working class in favor of the corporate donor class with disastrous neoliberal policies such as NAFTA, and as NPR dropped its early alternative tone in favor of a more neutral professional tone, thereby garnering the support of lucrative sponsorships, both of these institutions have solidified their reliance on and their subservience to the corporate and professional class at the cost of everyone else. Is it any wonder that NPR employees overwhelmingly belong to the Democratic Party or lean that direction? They are expressing class solidarity for the political party that ensures that nothing will ever fundamentally change. Besides the issue of homogeneity of class within the media, well-educated reporters, by the very virtue of their education, are suspect. And here's why. I want to go through just some demonstrative examples of how American academies, by and large, have been degraded. Through government defunding of higher education, universities have become more reliant upon tuition, grants, and corporate dollars. Battles over shrinking resources have pit tenured professors against adjuncts, administrative staff against college presidents, undergrad students against graduate students. Professors become judged by how many grants they can secure. Research trends less towards the public good and more towards lucrative commercial projects that corporations are happy to partner with and fund with the promise of their eventual patenting and privatization of the research. As universities, battered by the market demands of neoliberalism, have shifted their priorities towards, towards job training for students, the traditional role of the academy has been perverted. As the historian Ellen Schrecker notes in her book, The Lost Soul of Higher Education, quote, the increasing vocationalization of the academy now determines what so many American students do and do not learn, unquote. And once universities began seeking more funding from corporations for their research, they made a devil's bargain. Schrecker notes that researchers now are often mandated to keep their results and their data secret, flying in the face of, quote, the scientific community's traditional culture of openness and publication, unquote. Professors can't even share their work with their own students. This corporatization of academic research has emaciated higher education, turning universities into patent mills. This has deeply troubling results. Schrecker points to one case where, quote, the University of Pennsylvania simply dropped their study of breast cancer genes 
rather than risk a suit for patent infringement, unquote. In another case, at UPenn, where an 18-year-old died from a gene therapy experiment, quote, it turned out that the doctors conducting the experiment had not only misinformed their subjects about the project's risks, but had also concealed their own financial interest in the company whose product was being tested, unquote. This is what happens when you marketize and bring austerity and neoliberalism and corporate capitalistic values to academies. Market pressures on the academy also disappear any lines of inquiry or study that do not have potential for profit. Schrecker writes, quote, The once thriving specialty of labor studies, for example, has almost entirely disappeared, while that of occupational health is also threatened. Similarly, although plant biology attracts support from agribusiness, environmental studies does not, a shift in funding that doomed Berkeley's Department of Plant Pathology, unquote. Quoting a biologist explaining their school's requirement for researchers to disclose any findings that may be commercially relevant before they are allowed to publish it, quote, they have up to six months to decide the fate of what you are working on. The lines between industry and universities are sort of merging, unquote. Now, all of these examples are just a mere representation of how these kind of market principles have degraded what is taught and valued at our academies. If you want to argue that an elite education and an advanced degree is a valuable asset when working as a reporter, that it broadens your perspectives and gives you more ideas with which to bolster your analysis, fine. But given the mainstream worldview that tends to get spouted by those who come from such institutions, the fact that those universities have become manager mills, that they are subservient to corporatized and militarized research and funding, and that our academies chiefly operate not as makers of well-rounded citizens, but as specialized career mills, you cannot pretend that such advanced degrees accord people the platonic ability to present news and analysis that does not reflect the interests of the class that they belong to. In other words, own your bourgeois pig status and don't offend our intelligence by saying that your degree magically makes you unbiased. Colleges, by succumbing to their own corporatization without a mumbling word, have positioned themselves as a useful excuse for our political system to avoid the egalitarian and democratic distribution of wealth. We are told, in our oh-so-benevolently meritocratic world, that we must get a higher education and receive advanced degrees in order to be upwardly mobile. There is no other way. Pay for a degree or get fucked. College faculty and professors, by placating to their corporatization and accepting their new role as specialized career mills and debt prisons, have become full partners in the perpetuation of inequality in America. And the elite students, but also let's not forget the often woefully indebted students that colleges pump out, are carrying on that same crime into their professional lives where they give cover to the neoliberal order operating chiefly as systems managers. Now, happily, 
It seems that Ronald Reagan's plot to de-radicalize students by turning them into debtors has now borne a generation of students radicalized by their debt. But their ability to successfully turn that debt into collective power is as yet fitful and scattered. Now, Ellen Schrecker has written several books on the many ways in which professors and their institutions have been systematically disempowered and forced into becoming corporate subsidiaries. The issue of how this all happened is a separate topic for another video. Schrecker herself is a happy example of a professor decrying the corporatization of higher education. But the main point that I am drawing is that the intellectual independence and moral integrity of higher education in the U.S. has become so degraded as to cast skepticism on any journalist who ought to be using their role as a journalist to antagonize power, but instead defers to power and then waves their advanced degree around in order to rationalize their bowing, scraping, and creeping before the royalty of the neoliberal order. Intellectual inquiry that is worth anything must be truth-seeking, and therefore subversive, dubious of authority, and independent of dogmatism. Elite universities that pump out these stenographer reporters are not, as institutions, antagonistic towards the powerful and their liberal apologists. It is rare, indeed, for professors to stand up against the myths of American exceptionalism, to destroy the chauvinistic stereotypes that feed American innocence and keep us from recognizing our complicity in imperial and domestic acts of violence and oppression. Academic figures such as Wendy Brown, Ellen Schrecker, Cornel West, Noam Chomsky, Richard Wolff, Norman Finkelstein, and the late Howard Zinn are notable exceptions to the rule. Honest academic inquiry is self-critical and destroys hardened and atavistic political ideologies. Not many of our intellectuals embody this kind of courage, and few reporters who come from this same elite class express any of these noble characteristics that the academy has sacrificed on the altar of capitalism. I have no use these days for someone who robotically graduates from the sold-out academy with a specialized degree, be it journalism, political science, or anything else. Before McCarthyism, the purgings, the blacklists, the fear, before the military inserted its fingers into higher education, before the Bay-Dole Act allowed for corporate privatization of public research, before the days that Reagan-style neoliberalism defunded our academies, created a student debt crisis, and walled off our campuses from the rabble, our academies produced real-thinking citizens. Now, I wouldn't trust a college graduate as far as I could throw one. Without a holistic view of where we've been, where we are, and where we're going, in other words, without knowing what the fuck is going on in the world beyond your narrow tinkerings, graduates are worse than useless. They are counter-revolutionary. The fact of our immoral and dangerous inequality, coupled with the fact that mainstream media outlets speak in the language of the more well-off, with reporters by and large coming from the milieu of elite colleges and the professional managerial class, means that many people, who I count myself among, will increasingly see the media as a representative of 
and an apologist for the inequality all around us. We rightfully resent and even hate the current institutions of mainstream media because they defend moneyed interests, speak in the language of the upper-class elite, and are unwarrantedly deferential to the state, the military, and capital, all while being dismissive and contemptuous of the understandable populist rancor and incredulity that is thrown at their institutions. Why do people distrust the media? Because the media, feigning objectivity and balance, shovels out a very narrow point of view that is subservient to political and economic power and does not speak to the realities of the great mass of people. We hate the media because the media largely does not shine a light on the hollowing out of our public democratic institutions by corporate interests. In fact, establishment media must be deferential to capital in order to maintain funding and access to institutional sources, while increasingly, the great mass of people are becoming more and more impoverished and without capital. Seven out of ten Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Forty percent of people can't afford a $400 emergency. Meanwhile, the Fed wants to raise interest rates in order to manufacture unemployment as a way of tamping down inflation. And NPR, when reporting on that, doesn't bat an eye at this manufactured permanent unemployment scheme, saying that it will bring a, quote, healthy labor market with wages and consumer demand imbalance, unquote. No thought is given by NPR to question the merits of how the Fed chooses to dictate the fates of millions of people in our economy. They are the experts, so naturally, we must listen to them. This is stenography in action. Do you think that Kai Rizdahl of Marketplace would give a fair hearing to Marxist economist Richard Wolff about inflation? Would Mary Louise Kelly bring Marxist journalist Vijay Prashad on to talk about the ongoing plight of Indian farmers suffering under globalization? Would Ari Shapiro sit down for a balanced and wide-ranging interview to discuss the new book by socialist writer Vivek Jabir? If NPR were to hire a bunch of working-class, unaccredited reporters, hosts, pundits, and producers for their daily shows, culled from divergent, leftist, unapologetically anti-imperialist and anti-capitalist outlets, such as the World Socialist website, the Black Agenda Report, Truthout, the Empire Files, Breakthrough News, Jacobin, Consortium News, The Gray Zone, Monthly Review, Mint Press News, Multipolarista, The Real News Network, and others, and those new reporters maintained the same quality of work that they've been producing under their independent outlets, NPR would see its substantial corporate underwriting and institutional access completely cut off. Not because those leftist reporters are any more biased than the current coterie of NPR staff, but because the current NPR staff has a bias in favor of the capitalist status quo, because NPR is not threatening to elite interests, because it only speaks in language that is narrowly defined and has its parameters set for it by consensus. It is not that NPR is overtly and explicitly censored from up on high in order to appease corporate interests. It accomplishes that well enough on its own. It is that divergent voices would simply never be allowed to have a substantial mouthpiece in an establishment media outlet such as NPR at least not without a goodly amount of correcting. 
In other words, how can an institutionalized reporter working in a newsroom full of institutionalized reporters be an effective adversary of institutional power? As NPR shows time and again, it seems difficult to accomplish. Our political class is radically corrupted, and more and more, the reporters in mainstream media are products of that same class inculcation. Their universities produce neoliberal consensus and manufacture subservience to the political and economic power which props up the shambling corpse of our corporate state. Keep these matters of no little importance in mind the next time you tune your dial to National Public Radio. Now, as far as what NPR could be, while it may seem pie in the sky to transform NPR into a true radio of the people, there are things which could be done to move the outlet in that direction. Michael McCauley writes that, quote, NPR clearly does not approach stories from the fierce, radical viewpoint of Pacifica's Amy Goodman of Democracy Now!, unquote. But such a radical orientation should certainly be an aspiration for NPR. Some steps toward improvement are obvious, like not allowing lead reporters to be the best friends of the powerful people they're supposed to be reporting critically on, Ralph Nader has outlined multiple ways in which NPR has strayed from its original vision and can do much to improve the quality of its news coverage. Some of the things Nader suggests for NPR are to take a more aggressive stance in advocating for congressional funding in order to reduce or eliminate reliance on corporate donors. Additionally, he writes, quote, NPR should reject ads from disreputable or criminal corporations, unquote. NPR should focus less on entertainment subjects and celebrities and more on local civic leaders and organizations. NPR should focus less on responding to what is in the national conversation and more on underreported stories. Nader laments that, quote, very important subjects, conditions, and activities not part of this frenzied newsfeed are relegated to far less frequent attention, unquote. He also says that, NPR should be more explicit about the root causes of inequality and impoverishment of the American citizenry. He writes, quote, Increasingly, corporate power is shaping an ever more dominant corporate state that allows mercantile values to seriously weaken the social fabric and moral norms of our society. He goes on, Not many NPR reporters use words like corporate crime, corporate welfare, or cover the corporate capturing of agencies, the vast unaudited military budget, or many other realms of American life controlled by corporatism. But then what can one expect when they ignore credible civic groups who have timely evidence of such domination and keep on interviewing one another, inserting four-second sound bites to academics and consulting firms, unquote. In the same way that publicly funding our higher education system allowed for the growth of radical social movements in the 1960s, just having our public radio actually be fully funded with public dollars would potentially go a long way towards allowing less mainstream views on air. Getting rid of the need for corporate funding would open up space for programming that is more experimental, less regimented, and unapologetically anti-corporate. Just look at how the Works Progress Administration 
gave opportunities for more radical creators to make a living, leading to a flourishing in public art during the Great Depression. And, just as NPR underwent a fundamental change in its culture and ethos in the late 1970s, it can do so again, this time with an eye towards kicking out the security state stooges who get interviewed so often. The powers that be would hate such a transformation, which is a sure sign that you're doing something right. NPR ought to prioritize hiring talented reporters, producers, and managers from outside of the middle-class college-educated milieu. If the network wants to expand its listenership, instead of cynically targeting rich audiences in pursuit of corporate sponsorships, while also avoiding the pitfalls of condescension, NPR ought to be staffed by working-class reporters, ideally those who have not been socialized by establishment newsroom culture. Now, I would prefer working-class leftist reporters, but let's remember that class solidarity extends beyond the bounds of mere shallow political labels. Jack Mitchell was skeptical of being able to transform NPR. Uh, I don't think NPR could possibly change. It's become so big and so bureaucratic and so uh, ingrown that I just don't think it could change much. And the stations pretty much ape NPR. We must ask ourselves, given that NPR and its staff, its funders, and its audience is overwhelmingly liberal, white, and college-educated, Whatever happened to the public in national public radio? Our citizenry lacks a national outlet which we can truly call our own, a radio which serves our interests, not the interests of the powerful. My humble suggestion for a rebrand, TPR, the People's Radio.